Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, given how long it's taken you to reconcile your nature, do you forego it on anyone else's behalf? No, not anymore. <laughs> At least I try not to. <laughs> not even when someone you're with wants you to just shut up? Hmm. <laughs> what if I, I mean, that scenario? <laughs> I, might, I might be willing to listen to their reasons for why they'd like me to shut up, perhaps. <laughs> Uh, so if someone just tells you, you need to stop talking, it doesn't work? Sometimes it does. I think it depends on the the person delivering that message. Okay, tell you what. How long ago did you reconcile your nature? I don't, <laughs> know, if I, I don't know, if, know if I have yet. <laughs> oh, have you reconciled your nature? I think so, yeah. Oh, there's a... I can't remember. There's some good quote about you... At some age, you have the face you deserve. <laughs> or uh, <laughs> like... I like yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. So maybe at 33, I have the nature I deserve. <laughs> I've been noticing this a lot over the last, I'd say, three or four weeks. A lot of my friends are getting their shit together. And like, I feel like their lives are really like starting to blossom. And okay. I'm like, maybe that's what your 30s is. It's like just watching everyone you know grow up and like be like, oh, I can actually live uh, like a proper life now. Yeah, and I imagine the people you are seeing blossom, as you say, are ones who you have seen be at the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, a lot of these people I've known for, for a long time. And uh, well, I was talking to Josiah, who I've mentioned on this podcast before, about our, our time living together in Ottawa. And Actually, the reason I was talking about it, because we're doing True Detective. I think, mm. don't think we've mentioned that yet, but uh, it should be seen in the but title. But for all of you who can read, yeah. you know that. <laughs> um, I watched it first in Ottawa when I was living with Josiah and was just blown away by it as a, as a television show and, mm-hmm. and thought it was the best thing I'd ever seen. The first episode, or sorry, the first season, which is what we're doing. And I was talking to him about that time in our life and we chain smoking, drinking frequently on we like so they were we were sure. like we wanted to be Russ Cole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um I don't know. He was some, so cool. Yeah, something about that kind of nihilistic, self destructive, intelligent philo- mm, philosophizing. Obsessed. Yeah, obsessing about things was was attractive to us. And rewatching it I just realized, wow, I was in a very different place mm. in life when I first watched this film. Well, I'm sure we'll get into or, it. Sorry, you, this, you, this show. So you found the character of Rust Cole to be less compelling? Maybe not, Sorry, not compelling, because I think he's still compelling as a character, but um, like you, you looked up to him less, maybe? I think that for sure. And uh, on top of that, it just really made me reflect on 
perhaps, you know, reconciling myself to my nature <laughs> and how I really don't think that uh, Russ Cole did <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe reconcile not. himself to his nature. Maybe not until... I don't think you would live that way necessarily if you'd fully reconciled. Mm, interesting. So that's something we can discuss. But... Yeah, definitely. So yes, uh, well-referenced, David, <laughs> as we never <laughs> been in quite do. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be uh, embarking on True Detective Season 1. Um, there are three seasons of it, and it is like Fargo in the sense that every season is its own self-contained story. Unlike Fargo, though, I'm not sure if it's the same universe. I can't remember. I there, have... there's, I haven't, I don't remember any references to mm-hmm. the first season and the second season. Yeah, and then so, the, and then now there's three seasons of True Detective, and they're all their own narrative. And I've seen the first one three times through, so twice before preparing for this and then once through again for this one every time i love it it's so good second season i found to be interesting and the characters were interesting but a little bit more on the nose than the ones in the first season i thought right and the actual like crime that was going on was really complicated in the second season there was something kind of uh, maybe, and we'll probably talk about this in a later bit, but the, the kind of earthiness of the crime in the first season, I think, really added to the feel yeah, of the, it. The Louisiana, yeah, yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. the bog. And, and the, the bayou. And the, the bayous and the, and the people living kind of on <laughs> like the edge of level. squalor. <laughs> uh, I don't know. that The environment is its own character in the mm-hmm. first season. And then, I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the third season, I actually... I've seen it, but I can't even really remember where it is, even. I know it's like involves the abduction of two kids, but I liked it. But the first season, I think, just is the home run. True Detective, created by Nick, I can't even remember, Pizzolato or Pizzolato. I can't remember how to say his last name, but it's Pizzol. It's Italian. <laughs> and the um, season we're doing, HBO show, it was released, I think, in 2014. No. Yes, 2014. Yeah, yeah that's that right. That makes sense. And it's a story about how these two detectives, uh, Rustin Cole and Marty Hart, or Martin Hart, who are played by Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson, respectively, are solving kind of one murder that turns into like a couple other missing people's case, maybe a couple other murders, and they're trying to trace it to what eventually becomes this um cult basically (laughs) and just the ins and outs of it and so i don't know like it's just so good it's it's again we said with fargo this is one of the golden age of television shows oh right like just well in my very biased and personal opinion that is not you know directed at any kind of expertise i'm not going to claim to be an expert on television this is my favorite tv show Mm. like this this single season of a single show Mm -hmm. in my opinion is the pinnacle of what i saw happen in television over my 20s which i which i do think was the golden age i don't know i don't think we're back at it or are currently (laughs) maybe even still in it but i think we said before that it kind of started with the wire but i think this is the this is the pinnacle of well that era even like let's say 2012 to 2016 like that even four-year span, it was kind of like Netflix was ubiquitous and accessible and super famous, but it wasn't quite yet churning out all the shit it churns out now. 
Yeah. Like there wasn't yeah. just there wasn't just like a hundred shitty shows on Netflix you had to kind of wade through. At least my memory is I, I this isn't empirical, but just think a lot of these shows that you could get online were like just there and there weren't a ton of other ones to choose from beyond them that I just remember it being like there might be tons of good shows right now on Netflix I just will never find because I don't right. want to wade through right. all of the things that they just brand as their own that they buy up and it's just so terrible so <laughs> there's, like, there's yeah. so much shit on Netflix I, I not don't just even shit like, like just stuff like there's so many shows yeah I don't even go on like it's mostly on Crave and like yeah. Amazon Prime and yeah, uh Sometimes Disney Plus, you mm-hmm. know, and The Mandalorian comes out. And speaking of which, it isn't on Netflix. It's on. Oh, it, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, it's on it's Crave. It's on Crave in Canada, and then I'm not sure what streaming site it might be on in other countries. And it's kind of hard to remember, too, but because now it's just kind of common, actually, and, and not surprising. But it, was, um, it wasn't common in this time, even six years ago. It's so It's so funny to think how six years ago feels like a whole other lifetime. Yeah. Hey. Well, <laughs> and now pre-COVID, sh- right? <laughs> Holy shit! 2014 is like uh, an infinity ago. <laughs> you know? Yeah. A lot. Uh, yeah. But even then, it wasn't common for A-list movie stars to be in TV shows, right? True. And if we think about Matthew McConaughey in this context, I think this was his breakout into more serious acting because before this, he had been primarily in chick flicks. Mm, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, well, it came out the same year as Interstellar. Yeah, so yeah. So this, this was kind of his. Yeah, well, it's definitely a very different role for him. I can't remember. Dallas Buyers Club might have been before this, but like only a year. So anyway, I'm not a McConaughey scholar. No, <laughs> I just felt like growing up, he was not this a serious, or I won't say not a serious actor. He played a he was cat or typecast. Well, he was a certain kind of sex was, symbol. Yeah, he was a sex symbol, and he was typecast. And then he, and then he showed what he was capable. Oh, of. Oh yeah, well definitely in this show, both him and Woody Harrelson are uh, incredible. Oh. and like I kind of yeah, you're right. It's it was more of a not a surprise, but a kind of like revelation with McConaughey. Woody Harrelson, I kind of always knew, was such a great, funny, but serious actor at the same time. He's had so many great roles like that, that I wasn't surprised with him in this show, even though I thought he was really good, but definitely McConaughey yeah. was good. And so our plan is to do a multi-episode uh, take on True Detective, because there's so much to talk about. And if you've seen this show, you know that already. <laughs> and I would just say, before we launch into anything... If you haven't seen season one of True Detective, this one we're going to say, pause this. Uh, don't listen to us talking about it until you've seen it, because it is such an experience to get the first time. Like I'm envious of all of you right now who haven't <laughs> seen it, yeah. because to have that experience again would mm-hmm. be such a joy and and a psychological and philosophic journey that, yeah, yeah turn be- us off and go and watch the <laughs> yeah, show. Yeah, there are a lot of episodes we do where we're like, whatever, just listen, it's fine, no problem, especially these long-ass novels we do. But this one, you know, it's eight episodes, it's eight hours, and it's riveting. It's just, you know, visual storytelling at absolute zenith of what it can be, you know? And so do yourself a favor. Before we do a little plot rundown, I just want to express our gratitude to all of the listeners out there who listen to Really True Fiction. It's such a joy and a privilege to be able to make this podcast, and it's um, 
We feel a lot of gratitude for anyone who listens. If you are interested in getting a hold of us, you can send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. Uh, we love to hear from listeners. It's one of our absolute favorite things. And um, we're looking to grow, actually. And so any of you out there who have any suggestions, we'll take anything on board right now because we're really hoping to grow the podcast. Um, you can find us on Facebook. We have a page there, Apple Podcast, uh, iTunes, Spotify, Android, wherever you get your podcasts, we're available there. So if you subscribe, you can uh, get a notification every time we release a new episode, as well as um, if you listen to your podcasts on Apple, if you could leave a rating or review, that would be really awesome if you feel so inclined, because that is another good way to help new people find the show. And I don't know, for our you know regular listeners, if you have one episode that you particularly like, maybe this becomes it. Just uh, send it to a friend and say you should really listen to this. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's I think a good point. word of mouth is a good way to do it. And, totally, and we could use your help. Mm-hmm. And we love making it. Like it, that's not a th- that's not anything. We just feel like it's something that could be really special. So we're trying to make it that way. Okay, um, I guess we should do a quick plot rundown. Do you want to do it or do you want me to do it? Uh, why don't you do this one and then I'll I'll fill in. Okay, sounds good. So this is a really cool narrative in that it's kind of set over three time periods. This is actually something True Detective season one and season three do. Season two, not as much, but it's really cool. So the uh, detectives Cole, who's McConaughey, and Hart, who's Woody Harrelson, are being interviewed in 2012 by modern day cops. And neither of them are cops anymore, but they used to be. And they're being interviewed about their case from 1995 which was the murder of this young woman named Dora Lang, who they find out kind of in this field at a tree. And she's naked and her hands are tied and uh, she has multiple stab wounds in her abdomen. And she's wearing like these kind of antlers. And there's all of this kind of like um, kind of voodoo-esque witchcraftian type of paraphernalia hanging over. Like, uh, I don't even really remember what they were called, but they're kind of like made out of string almost like and little sticks. teepees sort of and they're demon yeah. catchers or something yeah there's probably a specific Devil, name for it yeah yeah it's definitely like a, a cult ish type iconography and little toys even and so it's just this grisly murder scene and they're the two uh louisiana state pd and this is all taking place in in southern louisiana so like the bayou like we mentioned and really low-lying land water everywhere it's such like I mean, we'll talk about this later, but the the geography of season one is just, I can't, I can't figure out how to best describe it. Like, it's just, it's part of the soul of this show, right? Like, you couldn't, I don't think this episode, this season would be as good as it was if it was like in, you know, upstate New York. No, right? no. Or, or like, yeah, I mean, there's other beautiful places, obviously, in the United States, but there's just something about like the dankness and the yes, kind of like that's a great way and well and almost this oppressive <laughs> poverty everywhere yes, yeah that's just trailer parks and kind of like everything is run down like other than like the police station and Hart's house well everything is run well, down in the Ru- show. rust says at one point he's like this feels like someone's fading memory of a town yeah, yeah good point yeah cole's got some good observations on well everything but definitely <laughs> where yes. they are and so I think they said that they've been partners for about three months when this murder takes place. And it's at the beginning of 1995. And it's actually on 
January 3rd, 1995. And that's only relevant the specific date because it actually happens to be Rustin Cole, Matthew McConaughey. It happens to be his daughter's birthday, but his daughter passed away at age two. And so that's why it just sticks in his mind as the day where they find this Dora Lang lady murdered. And so as the narrative unwinds in 1995, we're learning more about her connections. They go and talk to her boyfriend who's in jail. They learn some things. They learn about how she was kind of around this one town. And then they go start asking people around this one town about Dora Lang. And then one of the uh, residents of this town, I can't remember what the town's name was, but he asks if they're there to look for this young girl named Marie Fontenot, who has been missing since 1990, which had been five years. And they're like, well, wait, what? <laughs> like, and it's like, so then they kind of start passively learning about other these other young women and young people. They're also boys who are either kind of dead or missing in this just kind of general area of southern Louisiana. And so they spend all this time trying to figure out who the killer is. In the meantime, we learn a lot about Marty's marital troubles at home. Uh, yeah, Michelle Monaghan also is one of the leads. She plays Marty's wife, and she's incredible in this too. So then we're getting like all of these 1995 flashbacks. They're technically flashbacks because the cops are interviewing Cole and Hart in 2012, and they're giving their renditions of the story. And it turns out that the reason that the modern 2012 cops are doing this is because they're starting to see similar killings to what they saw in 1995 like the same antlers on the dead body and the same kind of like toys around and so they're thinking well maybe the killer they didn't actually catch the killer and so cole has come from texas and through the clues that they find they realize that their prime suspect is this guy named reggie ledoux uh, for the killings and they know he cooks meth and the biker gang that buys the meth from reggie is uh, Cole's old undercover because he used to be an undercover cop in this bike gang out of Texas. So he goes back into the bike gang undercover and there, there is this just fucking incredible scene <laughs> at the end of episode four. Uh, it's like a six minute long one shot of them kind of in this inner city house with this bike gang robbing this one house and then just how he gets away and gets saved by... It's just so good. And so... They find out where Reggie lives. They go out there, and instead of arresting them, Marty actually kills Reggie because Reggie and his partner are basically pedophilic rapists, and they have a couple of kids who look like they're about maybe 11 or 12 tied up in the shed. This is out in the middle of nowhere. And so they kill them. Then they have to like make it look like the they got shot at first, so there's all of this like difference between what the audience knows and what the other characters know, which I love that as a storytelling device as well. Because it just makes you feel a little bit different about well, the show. And how they kind of are telling the story. And they made sure that they, they've got the same story and they just stick to it no matter what. Mm-hmm. Right? And how they like clearly broke the law. But as the audience, we don't care. Yeah. Because they murdered <laughs> yeah. the people they killed were just monsters. And so then they kind of like, they think it's case closed. But in 2002, the other part of the time where they talk about what's going on uh cole is inter or interrogating because it's one of his shticks now he's a great interrogator this one guy who brings up this guy the yellow king which is a name that got brought up a lot in 95 as the pure person doing these killings and so basically in 2002 cole is led to believe the yellow king is still you know free as in there was another person other than reggie who was doing the killings and so he starts to go 
interview all the people he's not supposed to interview to find out, which involves this guy Tuttle, Reverend Tuttle, who's like this kind of like dyed-in-the-wool evangelical (laughs) type of Southern Baptist, it seems like. But it's just because a lot of the schools connected to Tuttle's ministry are also connected to all of these missing kids. Like all, basically all these missing kids went to these schools. So obviously like a good true detective. Yeah. <laughs> Cole. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. Cole figures this out and starts asking about it, but he gets in trouble because he, this Tuttle guy is the cousin of the governor of Louisiana. So you're not supposed to go messing with all the power players. Right. Yep. Yep. And so he gets in trouble. And while all of this is happening, Marty is on his second affair, so he's already been forgiven by his wife. He's on his second affair, and to get back at Marty, Maggie, who is Marty's wife, goes and basically, like, gets Cole to just, like, fuck her. Yeah. Like, it's not a lovemaking scene. It's just a pure, raw, lustful, animalistic, and it turns out purely for revenge scene because Maggie knew it it would hurt Marty the most for it to be rust to be doing this right yes yes so anyway that's a whole other part we'll get into later because huge huge part of the plot and then it kind of catches up and we're back in 2012 and rust cole has gathered all of this evidence not through means that could ever be allowed in court he basically broke into tuttle's house and robbed his safe and the reason that he gets marty to help him so marty and rust get back on the case to find the the third person or the actual killer or the yellow king as they call him is that in tuttle's safe they found a videotape of this cult all wearing masks and they show the rape and murder of this young marie fontenot who's this girl that gone missing in 1990 and so this girl at the time was maybe five or six so it's just you know obviously the movie horrific is, it's yeah. horrific we don't we, we don't, don't see the rape we, but we we see uh marty's reaction to the tape and then we see another character's reaction later on when they show it to him so good acting there and so then it winds up to being marty and rust in the last episode doing some awesome detective work to figure out who the killer is and they find him and they drive out to his property, which is out in the middle of nowhere. And there's a great showdown between Marty Rust and this guy whose name ends up being Errol Childress, I think. This huge guy. And he almost kills both of them. And they both kind of save each other's life at different times. It's really cool. And then at the end, they're in the hospital and they have this great little conversation. And so they find the killer eventually. Right. Over and it seems like expose all of the this kind of conspiracy of gross men mm-hmm. uh, who are who are participating in these acts. Like Well, yeah, there's definitely that was my maybe my only and it's not a huge critique or gripe, but I would have liked there to have been more about the cult. Yeah. Right? For something it's that kind was, of exposed there and then we don't really know what's going on. Just yeah, but, and the, but there isn't involved. even a lot of talk about it throughout the show. No. Right? It's like more trying to find the one or two guys that they can actually get from the cult as opposed to like, what is this entire cult doing? I mean, there's a few references to it about like, you know, people from this area have been here hundreds of years or like a long time. And there's a lot of influence from the Caribbean in this parts of mm. Louisiana. And so there's like obviously some of this... I think someone even says voodoo shit at some point, but like this kind of like paganism of the locals kind of thing. And it's funny because it's hiding 
a lot of the time in this evangelical church yeah. scenario, right? Um, these schools are harboring these people who are doing this. So yeah, there's more men out there. It's not really clear if they find out how to find. No, the other they people. don't make. Yeah, they don't. So, but I think the idea is that they've got that guy and now. They can search his house for evidence, right? And his wife is there, and she's a bit of a weirdo. Oh, I think they even say it's like his half sister or something. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of weirdness. There's definitely some weirdness and some what would be the right word like deep Louisiana hillbilliness. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. And so, um, yeah, I mean, hopefully that plot rundown came after you have just paused it and watched it. But today in this episode. We're going to be talking about Rust, Cole, Matthew McConaughey's character, because they're like co-main characters. I would say Rust, we get his point of view slightly more, not a lot more, but slightly more than Marty's. And Rust is the one who's pushing the story forward in 2012. Well, he's the true detective. Yeah, I would say so. Marty is, interestingly enough, probably the more senior police officer, Mm -hmm. the guy who gets along better with his fellow officers mm-hmm. but not so much rust and but yeah. rust is the one that's got like a talent and even yeah. marty talks about that right mm-hmm. it's like he he had this uh, this he, gift yeah marty recognizes cole's ability which is cool it's a really good part of the show it's like a weird partnership where they're like looking out for each other but they kind of <laughs> they don't hate each other until a certain point but they're like <laughs> kind of standoffish from each other too but I, there's a few parts where Marty shows his detecting chops. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. It's definitely more. So yeah, we're going to do Cole today and Marty in another episode. And then depending on time, maybe a whole other episode because there's lots more to talk about. How would you start even talking about this character? Because I would say, just as a preface of how I'm thinking about it, like I can't really think of any other character like him before. Certainly in like mystery detective shows. Because those are all kind of campy no. <laughs> before this, yeah. right? This is a very serious show. And yet he's like so explicitly philosophical that it was like kind of fun for me being philosophically inclined myself. Like, oh, I've never heard a TV show character use the word ontology before. <laughs> and well, yet think- <laughs> here's an HBO show where he does. So yeah, he's just like, I don't think I've seen a character like him before. But maybe, I don't know. Like, I think he is the... Uh- the reason that this show is as good as it is. Uh, Matthew, Mahon- Ma- Matthew McConaughey's performance is just incredible, but he is a, a kind of a unique character. Uh, there might be some obscure book or something in which, in which another kind, that, that kind of character is revealed. But I mean, he's, he's the, I like, I like that one conversation he has with Marty when they're driving down the road and Marty's like, do you ever wonder if we're good men? Like, and and, and uh, Rust is like, we're not good men, yeah. but that's okay. The world needs bad men. We yeah. keep the other bad men from the door, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, that's like a more serious version of Team America's World Police cock pussy and asshole or dick pussy and asshole speech. <laughs> so, like, I don't remember that. Well, um, it's like talking about how the uh, it's like the climax of the movie Team America, where Gary the actor. He's talking to the Film Actors Guild why they need to stop Kim Jong-un. He's like, well, yeah, you're right. We are dicks. And sometimes dicks fuck pussies. But sometimes. But dicks also (laughs) fuck assholes. (laughs) And without the dicks, the assholes would shit all over the dicks and the pussies. (laughs) 
<laughs> so you need the dicks to fuck the assholes. <laughs> so right, perhaps right. a slightly more poetic take. Uh, yes, yes, would be Ross's <laughs> take. Yes, yeah. the bad men. Yeah. Well, it also goes back to your whole uh, kind of theory that we've been developing on, you know, the hard-headed, soft-hearted people are the ones that mm-hmm. kind of protect the world against the hard-headed, hard-hearted people. Right. And maybe rust is like, if you think of it as instead of like just quadrants, but like matrices in the quadrants, he'd be like right on the line between hard-hearted and soft-hearted. Yes. Right. Like he yes. wouldn't, he's not like hard-headed, but just like Mr. Compassionate. No. <laughs> right. No. Like he's just like barely well, on that side. Well, he's fully realistic, right? Yeah. Like he doesn't really believe there's meaning. I mean, some of the, the rants he goes on about, I mean, one of my favorites obviously being the Nietzschean idea of time being a flat circle, eternal return of the same. His speech on that particular point is one of my favorite in cinema, where. <laughs> And then he looks up at the sky and he just got this look on his face. He's like, me? <laughs> yeah. I'm so important? Me? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, it's so funny. Oh, it's so good. It's like, again, one of the reasons why we recommend really watching this show is that it would be almost, I mean, and you and I are not, you know, <laughs> we're not bereft of verbosity. When no, it needs to no. Be. And yet I feel like it would take so long to go through the ins and outs of his character, right? Like it would. It would just take yes. so long to... Like, I just, as a listener, I feel like you'll get so much more out of our comments about this and our observations if you kind of already have an intuitive take on what he's like in the show, right? Yeah. Because it's hard to describe. It is It's actually hard. Okay, so I'm going to take a shot at it. Okay. I think Rust as a character is kind of the strong, it's it's a bit of a romantic ideal. Okay. And that he is the the strong, quiet, philosophic type mm-hmm. who, you know, who's tormented by demons that he can barely control, but he's also brilliant. Like in a sense, he's a version of Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Right? He's, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's so I mean, totally different in that he's he's kind of like he's Louisiana's version of Sherlock Holmes, right? <laughs> he's not the British version. There's no it's the tax no, man. There's no real, cl- <laughs> yeah. There's no real class to him, or or you know, um, he's not a gentleman by any stretch of the imagination. No, but he is a ph- he's philosophic. He's thoughtful. He's he's incredibly self aware. Mm-hmm. Um, and and importantly, and it's not really hammered home in this show, but it's super important to understand him is that he has been through some deep dark shit, like the loss of his daughter, the disintegration of his marriage at the result of the loss of his daughter, and also like it wasn't made clear, but it kind of really made it sound like he accidentally ran over his daughter in a car, like. There was well, that one scene yeah. where it sounded like it's not made clear. Well, he, I think someone ran over the kid, right? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't clear that it wasn't him that he was talking about while it happened. No. So, like, either way, but if can you imagine if you had done that? No. <laughs> like, right? So let's just even like that's potentially there. And then he's also been undercover for like four years with this like super dangerous biker gang. And he's probably had to do some pretty terrible things there. And he so was like, and he was used by the U.S. government, mm-hmm. it seems, because he became addicted to drugs. Yeah, right. Like he had a yeah, drug right. addiction, Good and point. that's why they threw him into yeah, state PD. this crime unit. Right? So yeah, like it's important contextually to realize like the shit this guy is coming out of 
into yeah, this next like job. He's, he's been living a very rough life and also has incredibly traumatic experiences. And it also sounds like maybe he was doing like he's he's having drug flashbacks too. And yeah, so he's also got this. Um, uh, he probably names it, but I can't remember. But it's a it's kind of like a psychological condition, I guess, where he just kind of sees colors and lights. But he's not dreaming and he's not hallucinating. Like, he makes it very clear. He knows that he's awake and he's lucid, but he just sees, like, these kind of beautiful, like, almost Sesame Street type of patterns in the in the sky that kind of look like stars moving around, but they also have weird colors. Yeah. And it actually happens at a very inopportune time, right at the climax of the yes, show, yes. where they're about to fight this arrow guy, and you start seeing, like, this galaxy all around him, and that's why he's off guard when he gets attacked. But anyway, yeah, so... He's kind of he's messed up. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's he's got some damage from yeah, the, right. all the drugs that he's done. And, sure, yeah, and the the life that he kind of led. But he doesn't want to be. He doesn't want to leave the game, right? I mean, fundamentally, That's what he's good at. Fundamentally, he just he and yeah, it's it's what he enjoys doing. It's what he's good at, and he he just wants to be part of the show, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and for him, the show is kind of i think his identity is kind of being like a, a watcher trying to like defend innocence despite seemingly his lack of belief in <laughs> in any sort of like how he, why he believes in morality why he even thinks that there's a distinction between good and evil isn't really outlined mm. it's just kind of assumed but he also like i mean there's that there's a scene where he's it's one of the it's in the first episode mm. and he essentially kind of outlines the beginnings of his philosophy on life to marty and he says i think that you know consciousness is a is a evolutionary mishap it's a mistake yeah i think he i think his line was consciousness is a tragic misstep in human yeah, evolution it, in human <laughs> evolution like yeah. it's and i mean this is all very shocking to marty who doesn't want to be reflecting on this level well yeah marty's just kind of like this ambient you know, kind of watered down liberal Christianity is kind of the cultural <laughs> pool he swims yes. in. Right? Yeah. So and he's very comfortable in yeah, that yeah, pool. Yeah, he's very comfortable in that pool. Yeah, exactly. So um, this is like, what the fuck are you talking about? And Marty's about? not very hard on himself, right? Like he, yeah. he he's, pr- he's pretty uh, forgiving of his own foibles, sure. right? But not yeah. very forgiving of others, interestingly enough. Like mm. he's he's your quintessential... Like his identity is wrapped up in cultural ideas of masculinity mm-hmm. and very, you know, like, oh, you don't have sex with my daughter or I'll beat the shit out of you. That happens. And he's like very easily, he's very comfortable with his own rationalizations. Yeah, exactly. He's like, like, he's so comfortable with his rationalizations that he doesn't mind admitting the rationalizations. Yeah. Even, <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, re- he's, but he's conscious of them as being rationalizations in a way that most people aren't conscious of it but he's like but they're they're justifiable so whatever yeah he's like this is how i navigate the world whereas rust is not that way like rust (laughs) like wants to live in you know alignment with his nihilism but there's something holding him back Mm -hmm. he's not fully nihilistic i mean he he still cares about catching the bad guys essentially seems to be all he really cares about right but he even uh, after they've been in that gunfight or whatever, mm-hmm. and for, there's a years a years of I mean there's that great quote from Marty where he's like, do you even know the good years when you're in them? Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or do you just wake up one day with ass cancer and realize <laughs> that the good days are gone, long gone? Yeah. Um, 
I think Rust doesn't believe in good days. Mm. Right? He's kind of given up on the idea that he can even have good days. Right. And 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 kind of mockingly condescends to people who even believe that good days are oh, possible. <laughs> that is a very polite way to put what he does, David. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He, he is flat out dismissive and even contemptuous, I would say. I think he rises to contemptuous. the level of, of I like contempt that, yes. for the kind of revivalist Christians they come across when they have to interview. Not yeah. just that, though. He's, he seems contemptuous of everyone. Yeah. Or he's... any joy or, or, or small happiness that people can get out of life. Mm, yeah, that's true. I, I think he verbalizes it the most with the Yes, with, with the Christians. Christians, he does. Yeah. But he, he verbal... Yeah, he, he seems to just kind of... I mean, even when he's interviewing with the cops he talks about being kind of glad his daughter died at three because it just saved her oh yeah that's a well okay so i I guess i just pointed out now i was gonna do it a little bit later but like one of the challenges about rust cole for us in this podcast is that okay so like a lot of the episodes we do we're like pulling philosophical or psychological things out of it that maybe aren't the focus like the philosophical and the psychological are the focus of this character. Yes. So there's actually like a hundred things to talk about. Like right. he's got throwaway comments that we could that probably do a podcast on. You and I would spend fifteen to twenty minutes like gleaning out of an interpretation <laughs> of a character. Yeah. Right. Yeah. As opposed to him just like giving these soliloquies <laughs> that are philosophical, where I'm just like, shit. Like I got all these notes, and they're going to take forever because. Right. Yeah. Everything is its own tangent. So, like, that's actually the challenge. That's a good point. We, we could we could just say his sequiliques, but then we wouldn't be adding anything to it. So. Well, but we yeah, but I mean, we could talk about what we think about them. I guess, yes. Yes. Which is probably what we'll do. So you've been warned. <laughs> um, I'm wondering though. Okay, so I like this because obviously you say something that makes me think. You know, this is really not an idea I've formulated a lot before, like even just talking with you about this set. I wonder if Cole is the kind of nihilist, and again, I, I have to use that term a little bit loosely because I don't think he actually totally is. I mean, he can't be based on what the definition is and how he acts. But if he's the kind of nihilist that needs to be doing something to distract himself from it. So right? an Epicurean? I guess so, but Epicurean... I guess I just my connotation is Epicureans aren't as broody, no, <laughs> as Cole no. is. Like they're actually like not too butter right. Actually, about the facts. He, actually, he couldn't be an Epicurean because <laughs> yeah, yeah. they're trying to like get the as much yeah. pleasure out of life as they can, and he's not doing that. But I think I think probably Cole needs to engage in activities that remove him from the psychological mental space of just despair and despairing. Right. And and just thinking about how horrible he thinks everything is. And I and I think, you know, probably he's decided that between his talents and his aptitudes, being a cop is probably the best compromise for that, where he can actually help people that because he, he doesn't seem to one concept I would say he doesn't seem to patronize on or be smug about is innocence. No. Like, I still think he does kind of have some concept of innocence that he cares about. And so, you know, the women who get murdered, and especially that little girl, Marie, I think that that would count for him as, mm, even in this meaningless universe, I still can't not care about that. And so I'm going to orient my job 
around trying to maybe help those kind of people or solve those kind of cases because if I'm going to be doing anything to ward off this nihilism, and he even says how he doesn't, he lacks the constitution for suicide. Yes. Which is fascinating. Like, obviously, holy fuck, <laughs> there's so much to talk about about that you. line. Okay, well, if you are a person who lacks the constitution for suicide, but you think the world is meaningless, well, you're in a conundrum. So do something, right? Yes. And I think that probably he's smart enough to realize this is the thing he needs to do. Yeah, and he sane. does. See, he does seem to have, at one point, come to turn or seem to think like, "Well, I'm not going to really drink anymore because obviously I've had a." Pro-. He say, even says to Marty, "I had a problem with it in the past. I don't mm-hmm. want to do it anymore." And then, you know, you fast forward, I don't know, 17 years, mm-hmm. and he says, "Well, I, you know, all, all of my days off, I drink, and this is just how I live my life, mm-hmm. and I've come to terms with it, and that's how I want to be." Mm-hmm. So I mean, he obviously he he has <laughs> demons that he that he isn't able to control. Well, so like here, okay, I think that he's a great representative in culture of why it's impossible to live nihilistically. Yes, <laughs> right, or, or live like, long and well nihilistically, unless you. I don't know. I mean, we talked. I can't remember. We talked about this with the Joker a little bit in Batman, but how when he's not kind of like focusing on his propositional beliefs about the world you can tell he cares or he's like pulled by things why would he even bring up the fact that he knows he shouldn't be drinking unless he's got like a higher order kind of even compulsion in any direction that thinks that there's like a better or worse state of being right right like how can a nihilist acquiesce to that and i guess i'm saying like I think nihilism is is a funny, is an interesting idea because it's something that's fully comprehensible philosophically and yet totally unlivable right. psychologically. Right. Because, and this is actually part of the problem I think Camus was noticing when he when he wrote, it was like, that's the absurd. That's the absurd of like coming to terms with the idea that maybe we are in a universe that doesn't care about us, but we can't help but live in such a way because of our psychology to care about things and like try to do things that make something better and 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 notice how much we don't like it when it gets worse right Right. so like why care about drinking or not why care about doing anything right and so i think cole is so fascinating because i believe him it's not that i don't believe him when he says these things but i think he's got a some of these cases of that everyone has of these psychological biases and blind spots like these blind spots that allow him to live non-nihilistically while still telling himself he's nihilistic. Does that, if that makes sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. You know? And so that's a fascinating character because you add on like, I don't know, an IQ of maybe like 190 on this guy kind of thing. Yeah. And just a, a, like an intuition, like nobody's business. He can sniff out anything. He's fascinating. He's absolutely fascinating. And, <laughs> and it's part of the humor is how incomprehensible Marty finds him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and how how d- different they are, right? Like, and not just in intelligence, although that's made pretty clear that that Rust is significantly smarter than Marty, but in just outlook. Mm-hmm. And Marty and and Rust will tell Marty he's so much smarter than him, yeah. and yeah. and he's even like. He's even kind of got like a physical edge on Marty because yes. it, it's it's at least heavily implied that um, Rust has uh, martial arts training. 
Well, yeah, he could break. He <laughs> supposedly he could break Marty's hands easily when he's when he's grabbed him and thrown him up, up against the uh, the mm-hmm. lockers, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe before we start like getting into details about Cole and just like specific, like okay, so what is what's the upside of this kind of person? I think there's a level of authenticity. Yeah. Right. right. Like yeah. like he's not pretending. You don't have to you don't have to worry about like here's the I think the dichotomy between the Rust and the Marty. Mm. Marty's a liar. Right. Marty is constantly covering up his covering for himself. Yeah, that's a great point. Covering up shit and like the reason his marriage falls apart is because he's just a blatant liar and doesn't seem to have shame in being a liar. And and almost weirdly because you would maybe guess this more of Rust, he he kind of lacks an empathy. Like, yeah. he just doesn't quite get why his wife would be pissed about the things she's pissed about. No. Which is weird, because it's very obvious to the audience why she's pissed, right? Whereas, you don't ever get that from Rust, right? Now, does his do his marriages work or whatever? <laughs> or No. And is he an easy guy to live with? No, not at all, right? Mm. There's There's all kinds of problems that come with being around a guy who... Seems to get no joy out of anything and is constantly miserable and oh god, okay, and morose. This, and like, <laughs> here's a great example of the humor. I think it's the first episode, yeah. And they're driving in the car, which is where all the best conversations obviously happen. And Marty asks him about him or something, and Rust says, "Well, you'd call me a realist. In philosophical terms, I'm a pessimist." Marty's like, what's that? He's like, I'm no good at parties. <laughs> and Marty's like, I hate to break it to you, but you're no good out of them either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what a great anyway. Yeah. So yeah, like that's a and classic. So he's point. he's not fun to be like this isn't a guy that you would want to be friends with. No. Um, this isn't a guy that's gonna build you up. But it's like it's you wouldn't even know how to become friends with him. It's no. not that you like, oh, I don't like that about him, although I guess that could happen too. But it's more like I wouldn't even know going about how to talk to you in a way where I feel like you actually liked my company. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, the thing is when you like make new friends, you're just playing off all these social cues of like, oh, that joke got this level of smile or like that comment had this level of energy in response. Right. And then you just calibrate along the way. Whereas with Russ, it's just like, okay, yep. Nope. No, I'm not going to tell you what I really think. Unless you're Marty, I guess. It's just like you wouldn't even know how to start it, mm-hmm. right? I, I, so it's like his output is only propositional. It really is. It's like, yeah, here's what it is. Here's what I think. Here's what I don't think. Here's why I think you're dumb. <laughs> There's very little relating. That's so I, he, I do think that the only like maybe positive for that way of living is you know what you're going to get with him. Sure. Right? Right. He's not inconsistent. Mm-hmm. He's trying to live his life ass in line with his beliefs as he can and his beliefs are really depressing yeah he definitely seemed to me a good candidate for therapy yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey? yeah and yet i i feel like he would be so resistant oh i don't I, but it would be so good for him he would probably think that he was you know beyond it well was, actually he no he says that he's uh right the scene after where marty and him fight in that episode in 2002 and he's going to be getting like mandated therapy for his role in whatever the boss didn't like that he did. And he's like, I am the, and this is what he says. He's like, I am the least needing of therapy of anyone in this building. <laughs> right. <laughs> because he thinks that he's got it all figured out. Yeah. Well, I he's mean, got, he's got stuff figured out. 
Like he's got enough figured out to befuddle everyone around him. Yeah, philosophically. Philos- but the problem is he's going running around in circles, right? He can't. The his philosophic understandings are really robust, mm. but I don't think philosophy can answer the questions he's asking. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, at least certainly not the kind of kind of soulless philosophical points he makes throughout the show. Certainly can't. No, I think. Me on the outside throwing a philosophical take on his behavior ultimately is that I actually think he's compensating, he's subconsciously compensating for that giant hole that he feels by what he calls like, we have a duty, Marty. Like, I feel like he does feel responsibility because he can help. And why would he help if it was hopeless? And so I think he's kind of effectively tricked himself and i mean like the thing is that why i it's such a compelling character and believable is like that's basically what people do all the time about something in their life right like there's almost nothing that any given person you and me (laughs) certainly included have where if we're asked about it we'll have either a slightly incoherent or like a, a like we have confidence in our opinion on something but who knows what we really do when we're tested, you know, right. three months from now. And we like, maybe we behave a little bit different than we say we'll behave or we think, right. That's like a mechanism to protect ourselves. Yeah. Oh, way, for sure. Right. And I know we've talked about this lots, but like try and not act in the world. Like just try it. It's like harder than anything, right. To, to just do nothing. Yeah. To lie around and do nothing is harder than like self-harm. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like I think probably these these swirling elements of meaninglessness and pain are part of the reason for things like self-harm. It was like, you know, there's that uh, Three Days Grace song, I'd rather feel pain than nothing at yeah. all. Yeah. Right? And this is a psychology in specific I can't relate to with Cole, but my guess is his true feelings about the meaninglessness of the world are so overwhelming, he needs to do something, right? Now, it's interesting, and I guess why he's ultimately a hero, so what he chooses to do is help others, even if it's, you know, state-ordained. Right. Like, he could go be a private security. He could go probably make more money doing other stuff, but he's trying to- But he wants to catch- Hunt, at, hunt and catch people and who are hurting kill bad people. guys, yeah. right? So, like, in the scene where Marty kills Reggie, I think it's the next episode, they're driving in the car, and Cole says- Killing Reggie Ledoux, that was justice. So it's like, he's not... <laughs> he has, yeah, he has yeah. A, an ethical and moral code. So he's definitely not a nihilist. No. <laughs> now, does he say he's a nihilist? I don't think he ever actually said... I think he says the word nihilism, but I don't think he says he's, he's a nihilist. Technically, I'm a blank, but but in, but in I'm a pessimist. I, re- I think he says realist. Technically, I'm a realist. Well, I think he says, like, you would call me a realist, uh, right? Like, the no- the normative term would be, oh, he's a realist. But he says, in philosophical terms, I'm a pessimist, right? Which is a slightly different, technically, than a realist. No, I for think sure, there is yeah. also a realist. You can- in, in boring technical philosophy, these words mean very specific things. And so, I can't remember, but a pessimist is much more like trending toward nihilism but i don't I, I don't know it's been a long time i don't think it's the no exact you're same right thing. maybe not maybe it's too extreme to call him a nihilist well, only because i don't actually think he says that about himself maybe he does we could be wrong with this but i don't remember it happening no and I, I think, think you're he right. would know well enough to say that about himself if he was right but <laughs> but i mean like he says things like death created life to you know 
to be the creatures that it kills, right? <laughs> like, well, he's to he's, feed itself. He's sad about the fact that he cares. Yeah, he's not happy, <laughs> right? About like it. he he's got that line with uh, uh there's like it's like the seventh episode where the old lady says something about life after death or you know everlasting life and something happening to you after you die and he, he's like oh god i sure hope that old lady's wrong about life after death <laughs> which is like he says it right. in a kind of wry manner because he also has a sense of humor it's just very deep down in yeah there. it's it's very subtle but it's it's kind of like that's in keeping with his character throughout the show of like he i like he's the kind of person when it happens he would welcome the warm embrace of nothingness yeah right yeah i think okay here's what i'll say okay there's enough uh, discontinence and a di- enough like paradoxes mm. and weird uh, rationalizations in him right. that it makes him feel so much more real. Mm-hmm. Like it's like this is a person who who could have lived. Like and this oh, is yeah. a way that you can react to the world, kind of giving you a lot of gut punches. Well, I mean, he chooses to fuck Maggie, and he knows he doesn't want to do that. Yeah, right. And like. <laughs> Not to tell too many tales out of school here, but I think most people and probably most guys can remember a situation where they have a sexual encounter. Well, okay, everybody can have a sexual encounter that they're like, why the fuck did I do that? Yeah. <laughs> like, why the fuck did I do that? But, you know, something in the combination of the heat of the moment and the hormones and the kind of like, <laughs> this is not an excuse, but it's really hard to use the, your top head yeah yeah <laughs> in, in there, those there's kind of moments like, where and it's especially just not in good. a moment where an attractive women come woman comes to your house with the intention of getting fucked by you yeah it's gonna <laughs> again, be hard I'm using that word intentionally <laughs> yeah because it's very animalistic and then he's just like what the fuck why did i do this why did you do this to like why did you come here to do this and why did i do it so okay what's my point here he's like imagine in real life if you got to just like follow someone for like a week even like a week would probably be enough to see this but like a month for sure because really most of the time in life we get people in conversation mode or in person-to-person mode which is like one of many masks that people wear right true like there's a mask of like just talking to other people in general and then there's a different mask of talking to you specifically (laughs) and then there's a mask of when no one's around yeah yeah yeah. and there's what's kind of cool okay so this is like a double layer of what's cool about cole the cool thing about him is that like on the surface he doesn't give a shit about those different masks he's kind of like the same all the time in the sense that he will talk to anybody the same way. Like he doesn't have a different mask for any individual person. Like he, like he says, he's reconciled his nature long ago. He's not going to forego it for you. Right. (laughs) Right. And yet realistically, as we, the audience of the show follow him, we see his, I don't even call them hypocrisies because they're not conscious, but we see his human discontinuities in his own thinking. Yeah. We see his his behavior. We see that like, he's still a, he's not, a philosophic concept he's a human being living in the world Mm -hmm. and in that living it's messy and and it's interesting because you think of him as strong right because he's so smart but he's actually quite weak not because he was unable to deal with the the grief that he faced right but because he lets it destroy him Mm. Right, like he essentially becomes a shell, alcohol, like a shell of a man. Mm-hmm. Like 
if you look at the life trajectories of him and Marty, like you don't want Russ Cole's life trajectory. Well, Marty even says that, like at a certain age, a man needs a family. Yeah. <laughs> or a man without a family is just sad. Or yeah, not, yeah. Or I don't know. It's something yeah. like that. Well, he says multiple things about that, but he's like, yeah, at a certain age, a man without a family goes a little bit batty. And like, yeah. it's not just that he doesn't have a family. It's that he's kind of just sunken into and soaked into his vices. And he's mm-hmm. just like, well, this is who I am. I've just, I've just, you know, come to terms with it. And right. Yeah. That's what alcoholics say, mm-hmm. right? It's not, this is not a, and yet you feel such an affinity for him, mm-hmm. right? You're like, oh man, he feels like the hero. Well, that's why I, I think it's because he's not actually what he says he is. Right. Right. Like yeah. it's, it's it, this is a complicated thought I'm even having because I'm not even, so my observation of just generally, and it, this isn't a blame thing because I know I do, people aren't what they seem, Right. Like any interaction you have with a person, you're getting like, it's not a slice of them. It's a slice of them now. And it's like kind of orchestrated, maybe not even consciously. We're like, we're kind of socialized to just polite society or whatever, right? So it's different with people you know really well. And this is actually part of the reason why you would say you know a person well is when you think about them when they're not there. But for the most part, people you come across, you don't think about them when they're not around you, right? Like why, like (laughs) there's only so much bandwidth. So like, Every person I talked to in the last week who I have a certain opinion about maybe or a certain perception of and they have of me, it's kind of like there's that maybe 15 minutes of talking to them and then I'm gone and they're gone. And then that's actually like there's like a a stop bar. It's like, oh, okay, now their personhood stops. And anytime I have to think about it again, I'm actually going to recollect to that moment. As opposed to like, if it's two months later before I see them, the two months interim of their new experiences and time spent on the planet are not things, things that you're. They're not things that I'm going to conceive of, right? Right, unless I think about it carefully. Well, and you can only think about it carefully <laughs> if you know it, right? Right. So, but this is what I'm saying. Imagine the thought experiment where you just like, in a sense, had a movie on someone's life for a month. Let's say you would get all of the discontinuities we're getting out of coal, right? Yeah, you would true. get all of that. So. This is why I actually really like him is because he, in one way, plays, he's like solving, he solved like part of the problem, which is like not being inauthentic about what he actually consciously thinks about things, which is like, I don't think he's a liar. I think he really does think those things that he says, but there's more to him than his conscious thoughts about himself. And like, it's cool because he even knows that. Yeah. (laughs) Right. But he just... When he's not thinking about his <laughs> desire for meaninglessness, he's acting as if the world is very meaningful. And it ultimately is meaningful for him because of the people he can help, it seems like. Like, he wa- he, he he likes Marty. He does. It's, it's yeah. weird. Like, he just, he does kind of like him. He likes, he feels like Marty is a good, well, also- I don't think it's actually that moment where Marty kills Reggie, that he really likes Marty. He's got that line, it's good to see you finally commit to something, Marty. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> He's so hard on Marty, but here's yeah. the thing. Marty likes him. Like, Marty finds him annoying and all this crap, but Marty sees something in him that mm-hmm. none of the other police officers I think it's, do. I, I think it's the, he's the bad man that can catch the really bad man. Yes. Right? Yes. In a way that Marty knows, Marty knows his own limitations in the, in the detective world. And he's like, fuck, Rust is weird. And not good at parties or out of them, <laughs> but like someone is 
ritualistically killing women in the Louisiana and we Bayou need, right we now. Need to find and we need to person. find him, and I can't do it without him. Yeah. So it's like that. I think is why Marty. I like that. I like partially likes. Yeah, he's so complicated, though. You know. Well, I don't think it's even possible to. <laughs> like, I think what makes it so good is your they they crafted a character that you feel like you know as a real person mm-hmm. after watching that show. Mm-hmm. Like, the character of, of Rust Cole has played a role in my life yes. as a concept yeah. ever since I watched it. And maybe for the worse in some ways, like, there's definitely a... Uh, he, he glorifies despair. Mm-hmm. And he kind of like, he's like a pig in mud when it comes to just (laughs) sad and unfortunate thoughts. And and one of the things you notice is he likes telling people that everything's shit. Yeah, but you know, I, well, okay, I don't know. Like, maybe this could be a, I wouldn't say a disagreement, but um, I'd like to explore it more. Like, I, I got the impression that he didn't get a lot of joy out of being right in the sense that it wasn't even like it's not why he's here. No. So he might harbor some kind of like smugness or some sort of satisfaction at some level over being, you know, all these dummies I'm around. But it it almost looks like he's bored with Marty's complaints about his kind of acidic take on things. Right. Like Marty, why are you even arguing with me about this? This is so stupid. It's partly like I'm so obviously right and this is so obviously unimportant. Why are you getting so butthurt about all right. this, right? right? So you might I don't know. Like I, it's it's not explored in the story. So okay, so here, why why do you think he does get off on being right over other people? Well, it's more that I think you're right and I'll try to nuance it. He's so convicted in the absolute truth mm. of his belief system. Okay. That he kind of looks at everyone else as if they're just deluded. Sure. But I know and, what you mean by using the word convicted there, but it's it seems like he's more just kind of... Ex- I would say he's at the acceptance stage as opposed to the conviction stage. Well, the only difference between those two would... I mean... He thinks it's the truth for sure, no matter what. Mm-hmm. What he believes. Yeah. And actually, that's what's so interesting about the end. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, it is. Well, yeah, okay. We'll, we'll definitely... I, I, we'll talk about that at the end. Though, yes, yeah. A, it's kind of the wrap-up, obviously. But, like, okay. He seems like he's almost post-right. If I could make that distinction. Like, if, you're, if you want to be right, that's when you rub it in someone's face. Right. I'm right, you're wrong. He almost seems post-right. He's so right, he's beyond caring about the fact that he's right, and he's just trying to go do something else. Right. And he feels kind of, like there is, he does seem a little bit bitchy at the church tent, and unnecessarily so, but when Marty does start calling him out on that stuff, he's like, just look, here's all the evidence. Why are you getting mad at me? (laughs) But he's kind (laughs) of- I have a job here to do. But he's kind of cynical too, right? Like he's cynical about- all of the criminals that he's mm. almost he's weaving this tale of redemption and forgiveness and playing off of their psychological perhaps um weaknesses and he just does it right mm-hmm. 
because it's like he's existential. I've heard it said, or one of my friends said about this show, like the true detective story isn't actually about the crime at all. <laughs> it's about this this true detection of meaning in the world, mm. right? This this existential journey that Russ Cole goes on. Yeah, that's an interesting point because like they both Marty and Rust have their own kind of quagmires that bring them out of being true in some sense and Rust's is like an over-reliance on his perception but like that not being enough for him and it, Marty's is more like a kind of he says it himself it's his inattention yes. to detail. Yeah. That lets things pile up on him, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which is they're like so dangerous in their own different ways. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> I guess we might as well start digging into his quotes. <laughs> yes, here we go. <laughs> now, this is something I thought was I just have to say is funny because you know we take a lot of notes for this. One of his first lines is, "Of course, they take lots of notes. You never know what the thing's gonna be." <laughs> Right. And I feel that. Like, I feel like I, I take so many notes for this podcast. Right. And it's funny. As we've gotten better, I think, at recording, I have used less of my notes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, but it's the thing is, you never know yeah. what it's going to be. And you've, you've and, got some great notes sometimes. And it is, um, it is that attention to detail note taking that actually cracks the case for them in the end. Yes. With the scene, like the spaghetti man with the green ears. And in 1995, you see Cole taking pictures of all the houses in the town where they figure the, how they cracked the case. And without those pictures, it wouldn't have happened, right? No. Like Marty wouldn't have been able to piece all that together without seeing the greenhouse. And yet, how many cops wouldn't be thorough enough to take all those pictures? True. Right. Yeah. Like you could just like it was it was kind of like the anal retentiveness of Cole cracked the case and i i love that i just because it's yeah you don't know where it's gonna be right it's even kind of a mentality i have on reading books it's like i don't know which part of which book is going to be meaningful to me at any given point no so i better read all read the whole thing yeah yeah (laughs) so anyway i just thought that was funny and again it was him who had that line off the top that i said yes which is great given how long it's taken to reconcile my nature i can't figure i'd forgo it on your account Mark. yeah it's just like in the same moment it's so clear and sticking up for himself and such a slight to (laughs) Marty. it's such a good do you ever notice that i found this with people like people that are that self-confident can often be off-putting because you're just kind of like well i i get that you're really securing yourself but you know, well, maybe part care of it, about others part of it, a little and bit. And this is, this is a legitimate point I think Cole has against Marty, is that Marty is not asking Cole to rein it in for what, like any sort of like laudable reason. It's just like, you're going to make other people think you're weird, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like it's like yeah. a very kind of like vanity-based or superficial-based reason. It's like, why you got to talk like that? People think you're strange. Don't, don't. I've it's an order don't use those words kind of thing and Cole is pointing out like Marty that's bullshit you're getting bogged down in bullshit and I (laughs) of all the reasons I would ever not reconcile my nature it's not for your bullshit reasons (laughs) yeah (laughs) right like I've taken a long time on this trying to to figure out myself and and like a good narrative we learn that from his personality before we learn about his history. 
show it before you say exactly, it. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so it's so good. Oh, well. Okay. This is topical. In the second episode, he says, of course I'm dangerous. I'm police. Right. <laughs> I can do terrible things to people with impunity. Now, this couldn't be more topical. Uh, do we want to talk about this? <laughs> well, we're recording this on, what's today? June 18th, 2020. So about, I guess, was it like three weeks after the George Floyd killing? I don't necessarily mean like, let's get controversial. Because I think when it comes to police brutality, everyone I know is on the same page. No, there's not a lot of, There's yeah. There's no kind of, I haven't come across any partisanship on police brutality, right? I mean, this is kind of the libertarian argument against the state, right? Because the problem with the state is that it has a monopoly on force. And who's to say that the state is acting in good faith? Um, <laughs> well, and I mean, and also the state and, is made up of individuals. Yeah, like the state is, again, too abstract when it comes to like what's happening on the street. Because what's happening on the street is just people. Well, and that's, there's <laughs> a lot of, yeah, there's just so much there that isn't really about true detective i guess but um well okay so like to make it true detective adjacent at least it's interesting it's an interesting point to have a cop say that because i think it's a part of wisdom for cops to know that about themselves okay so cole saying that about his own position like of course i'm dangerous i'm police i can hurt people with impunity the tenor in which he says that is important too because he's also saying it in a way like because of that knowledge, I know how to like kind of keep rain myself, myself I in. know how to rein myself in. I know how to approach things more calmly and with more like kind of level headedness because I know the danger that I am that I can't unleash, right? So in that sense, he's almost like level three, right? Like he's above Right. He's yes. he's there's you know, unconscious actor, conscious actor, hyperconscious actor. And the hyperconscious can get away with the same mentality as like level one unconscious actor because he's meta aware even. Right? right. And so I just, I think like for sure what we're seeing in our world right now, if nothing else, is a need for police reform <laughs> and, yeah. and training. And, and I would say, and this isn't just a police thing, but like the adoption in any discipline of the ugly implications and side effects that do come along for the ride with your job and the very fact of being aware of them can be part of the things that help you overcome them right because like cole the kind of cop who doesn't know (laughs) that he's police and he can hurt people with impunity is often the kind who will right Right? like they just don't have that kind of awareness i guess so i i I guess we i'd want to make it a psychological point more than a social one yeah, okay, I really like that. And I think one of the other interesting things is he understands that, but so does Marty. And Marty commits horrendous acts using his authority for personal purposes. Well, he commits one. Does he commit more than one? So there's the one where he storms into uh, his girlfriend's house and kind of like essentially oh, physically right. assaults That's right. that guy and threatens. And he knows he won't get in and trouble. And he knows he won't get in trouble. And then, you know... When his daughter has sex, as seemingly consensual sex with these two guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's underage, so it isn't consensual. Well, they said she was 16. So I guess the, the, the law statutory could be rape. Remember, he says it's, he could have charged them with statutory rape, right? Yeah, I, I guess. 
well the guys were 19 and 20 and yeah. she was 16 so i guess it wouldn't have been in canada no but, but it, it would, would be, be in louisiana the yeah yeah especially in a state like louisiana <laughs> so he's using that power as well and he's, sure. and he's abusing it oh that's a good connection i hadn't really thought about how marty does like it's obvious and it's terrible but he only does it when it's personal yeah well that but like, still that's the worst time to abuse it i don't know if it's the worst time it i feel like, like they're all bad well, yeah you should well yes you should never <laughs> but, but i know should, what you mean but like you should never if you have power mm-hmm you should never be using that power for like your own personal, yeah, right. I don't know, vindictive mm-hmm. like vendettas. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess people, maybe that's probably pretty naive of me to say that you should never, because obviously I'm sure a lot of people do. I mean, even though it was justice, certainly shooting Reggie in the head it was complete. Yeah. It's not legal. Yeah. So <laughs> there's a lot of and Rust, I guess, never does. Hey. Like Rust doesn't. He never uses. No. He do- He never abuses his authority as a police officer. Not, I don't it, think so. Well, there's that time where he beats those guys up to find out where the bunny ranch is. Oh, right. So yes. I don't know if that really counts, but... Well, it's off screen. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't know for sure. <laughs> we don't know for sure. No, but yeah, happened. he definitely does beat those guys. Uh, yeah, I guess he does. Um, yeah, okay. Well, I think the, like, well, that scene in specific is part of the great tension of the show, which is when... I mean, this is not the only show that does this, but any like a lot of good cop shows will do this. Like the edge of where the law is effective in terms of like investigation, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. what do you do when you know what to do, but it's not legal, but it will get you the result you need? And this show plays with it. Like at that point, you really have it's a moral question. It's not a legal one for a lot of people, right? So, what Marty does to Reggie and what cole does to those two guys who are clearly skis bags and probably criminals as well is like abuse them but so that they can do something good now we can argue the merits of behavior for but that's why it's so complicated right like what kind of laws would we want a police officer maybe not maybe we don't ever want a police officer to to break the law but what Things are we not finding out? Like, everything's a trade-off, right? I think, yeah, there's a quagmire here. Everything's a trade-off. So, look, absolutely. We need better trained cops, better incentives for higher quality people to become cops, a kind of like, what would you even call it? Like, a better collaboration with cops and mental health professionals because a lot of these calls are people who are mentally unstable, not criminally active or criminally dangerous. But, like, if you're an untrained cop, you don't know. And anyone could have a guy. So it's like, like, of course, there's all these things. But yeah, here, and this is an important like, point for a thinking person to take on board is that even if all of that happens, you're still going to have videos of horrendous things with cops. Yeah. There's never going to be zero. And so like the, uh, the emotional hijacking is so unhelpful for the justice that ostensibly is even set of people that they want which is fair like the justice needed for some of these horrific videos isn't just solved by reacting to them right which i think is one of the great tragedies of the modern world right now is that emotional catharsis gets substituted for justice yeah <laughs> you know and lynch mobs and right not and- even not even just lynch mobs but okay i am so angry about something that 
I will be willing to engage in the types of behavior that make it worse for the groups that I'm ostensibly saying I want to help. Yeah. Right? So, like, this whole defund the police. And, and like, I know that, well, here's a controversy. It's not even, it shouldn't be controversial. Some of the neighborhoods that would be hardest and worst hit if there were no police would be black neighborhoods. Yeah. It's just true. It's just, and you can, like, there's lots of studies about all the people who, in black communities who love, who are glad the cops are around. Someone to call when there's crime in their neighborhood. Now, obviously, there's bigger conversations to have about crime and opportunity and all that kind of stuff, which is important. And I love this show because it all stems from that psychological realization. If Marty was a little bit more psychologically self-aware, he might not abuse his power. Right. I would imagine he wouldn't. I guess right? and that's a good point, right? And whereas we just, we see that Rust pretty much doesn't. Well, we've talked about this before, and this is a deep opinion I hold. I think part of maturity is trying to make things that are subconscious conscious. Not that you will make all of them, but it's just it's a lot harder to have cognitive dissonance for a conscious thought than a subconscious one, right? So because for Marty, it never rises to the level of consciousness. Like, yeah, I'm a cop. I got a lot of power. I get away with this shit. It's just kind of always rattling around in the lower parts of his brain, so he just abuses it. But with Rust, because he works hard to get that to consciousness, it's, it, I don't know, like, I just think, unless you're psychopathic, it's really hard to just choose to go against something consciously. Like, that's hard. It's really easy to do it to a subconscious thought. It's really hard to do it to a conscious one. Yeah. So... <laughs> Perhaps unserendipitously enough, the example in the show is cop abuse. Yeah, right. <laughs> Which is another quagmire for us to be walking in, but you know what I mean. I know what you mean. I think that we have descended into a place as a society where we don't understand that bad things are going to happen. Yeah. Like, yeah. and that there's bad people out there, mm-hmm. and that institutions can't fix that and they never have been able to and they're never going to be able to no and it's our job to find the bad people it's our job to expose the bad people whether they're whether they be rapists priests or bad cops or anyone who is abusing any other person Mm -hmm. these people need to be exposed Mm -hmm. but you can't change that yeah you can't change that those people exist. Mm-hmm. You can't just eradicate them. No. Because the problem, and I think um, the guy who wrote uh, Gulag Archipelago. Oh, Gulag Archipelago? Yeah. Uh, Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn. Right? Like, the problem is us. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> Each I- of you, everybody, the issue is that there's, there's every day you make a choice, right? Mm. Like, which path are you going to go down? Mm-hmm. Are you going to become more bitter and resentful at the suffering of life and the pain that you experience and the unfairness of whatever it is you're facing or the loss of something you love, whatever it might be? Are you going to go down that path? Right. Or are you going to go down the other? And that's each individual's choice. And a lot of the times when we see something like what happened, you, you don't you don't kneel on someone's neck for mm-hmm. that period of time if things are like good psychologically yeah right like <laughs> like you you have to like i can't even imagine doing that yeah right i, I can't yeah, yeah, yeah. There, and i and <laughs> you have to have some sort of power complex or something right you have yeah. to like 
or and and the there's like examples of this all over the place but the real issue wasn't that he was a cop right the the real issue was that he had something in him that he hadn't you know dug up and reflected on and tried to eradicate mm. that caused him to be able to commit a, a violent act like that yeah not a crime of passion no. right not not an accident yeah, I, I guess it's like um, the, the the legitimate critique, though, is that there's no reason, at least on the face of things, why police departments can't be better at weeding those kind of people out of their selection processes no, and their no, training. No, I'm not saying right? that we shouldn't always... I literally said we should look for these people. <laughs> yeah, we yeah, should yeah. find these right, people. Yeah. We should do whatever we can. But you're not going to eradicate them. That's my point. No, you're not going to eradicate them from and, the and, planet. And here's the, here's the issue, right, is... We now are on these where we're trying to change people's opinions about these things. And mm. I think, good. I mean, we talk about this in our Huck Finn episode. We talk about this in our, you know, in our Tom Sawyer episode. Like, racism is horrible. Mm-hmm. And it's, there is systemic racism. And yeah. many of the things that have happened in the world the most disgusting and horrible things, whether it's Hitler's murder of the Jews or the current treatment of the Uyghurs in um, China. In China, these things are unacceptable. Mm-hmm. But they're not going to stop because we tweet about it. <laughs> they're yeah. not going to stop <laughs> <Right>. because we <laughs> kneel. They're not going to... like yeah. These things aren't going to change unless each individual not as a society Mm. but each individual goes on a path of self-discovery in which they realize that all of their petty identities that they've been clinging to in order to give themselves a sense of identity are meaningless right well why not why not go for the gold standard hey yeah (laughs) every person's path of (laughs) self-discovery i mean we can't get that so i don't i don't i guess my frustration is I feel like, you know, it's all sound and fury signifying nothing. Right. And this and the sound and the fury potentially overshadowing a, a different kind of negative thing, which is like the desire for anarchy. Yes, which is hugely which is, negative. Which is then the desire for a power vacuum, which is a desire to be a warlord. Yeah. <laughs> essentially. Yes. Right? Now, here's the optimism. And I don't think it's unfounded. I was listening to a podcast today with Coleman Hughes and Steven Pinker and Steven Pinker is late uh, with, with his last two books has kind of become the, uh, the world's optimist, <laughs> right? Like the, uh, the good progress that humans are on, even though it seems all, all the other ways. And I, I think it's a framing problem. And, and here's what I mean is that if you look at it as good or bad, everything seems bad, right? But if you have a scale Things are improving. So yes, even though you can't get rid of all the bad people, as it were, there does seem to be, as far as the data goes, less bad people, or at least less bad people doing bad things that are getting onto data sets. So like anything you can name, murder rates, uh, crime, like crime is... Infant mortality. Yeah, infant mortality. Like all that shit was way worse in the 70s. Than it is now. Like the the crime was way worse in the seventies than it is now, and part of that 
is better policing methods. Now, that seems like a pretty crazy idea given the current scenario. But again, we're hostages of our time. We can't escape 2020 right now. We're all in it. So it takes extra cognitive work to remember. Coleman Hughes, who happens to be black, though I don't think that that's relevant, but it seems to be for a lot of people. He says that there are, I think he said, he gave out a stat today that apparently there's about half the amount of the 18 to 29 year old cohort of black people, of black men in jail than there was in 2001. Yeah, that's amazing. Like, that's amazing. Like, so half. Progress. Wow. That's interesting. That's just an interesting fact. And the problem with videos is that it hijacks our most hijackable sense, which is our visual sense, because we're very visual creatures. It's how we evolved. It's like our number one way of spotting predators. It's like why we're so good at depth perception Mm -hmm. and differentiating things in grass. Well, we had to, right? Like we had to see if a cat was coming and then get up the tree kind of thing. So so we're we're creatures that are so visual and image-based. This is why these videos seem, (laughs) uh, no pun intended, black and white when we view them, right? Which is why the necessity of statistics is so crucial for figuring out problems. Now, the thing with statistics is, yeah, cop brutality is still way too high. (laughs) It's still way too high. But it doesn't mean it's like at an all-time bad, right? Like we have numbers on stuff throughout. Yeah, but like the thing, here's the thing. I agree, 100%. But maybe this is where I'm the realist and <laughs> and, and Popper is the optimist. Like he's pointing out some great things. And yeah. I think that a lot of us just need to keep kind of put our heads down and keep working to make the world a better place like we are, mm-hmm. right? And shut up. Maybe like maybe <laughs> it isn't our job to try to convince these loudmouth people that you know things are getting better maybe it's just to go out there and make things better Mm -hmm. right but i know this from my work right is that people don't give a shit about facts they don't (laughs) facts don't matter i mean as much as that 25 percent of the population that loves facts the accountants the Mm. engineers the scientists the the people there are a lot of people whose minds love facts Mm. and and that is how they navigate the world and i I respect those people and I admire them and I do not live like them. And I do not and I know that 75% of people don't. Because what 75 and this is I mean I'm this is pop psychology I'm not but this is my let's say lived experience if we will. Um <laughs> <laughs> People don't care. They want to feel. And right now this is happening oh, this is not the first cop brutality murder i mean we've been seeing this happen a lot over the last i don't know 10 years 15 years and before that it just wasn't being talked about right so this this is a real problem that has existed for quite some time suddenly we all care about it so much more or is it that we were all trapped in our homes looking for some reason to feel something yeah, and, uh, well, and, uh, there's, there's uh, a few. I imagine there's a handful of factors. That's definitely well, one of them. That's what I'm saying. There's tons of factors here. And I don't think the fact that it was a Trump administration helps either. No, there's <laughs> there's a lot of, like, yeah, yes, there's a lot of factors here. Yeah, okay. So the question is, yeah, okay, 75% of people feel. I don't think that's destiny. I just don't. I, like, it's just, I think, again, because of how we've talked about it a lot in this episode, people are complicated. I guess, like, how hard is it to wake someone up? Well, uh, we, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, that's the fundamental question, right? How do you make people care about the scientific approach to reality as opposed to the religious one? 
and, and, uh, and I say this when they start <laughs> when they start losing all the shit they love from the scientific one. No, uh, what do you mean? Oh yeah, yeah. Their cars and their phones and their computers and their central heating. When all that starts going, when away. all that, then they would care. I agree. <laughs> or would they? Or would it just ascend into some kind of barbaric? Well, chaos? we don't actually need those things to survive. No. That's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> would they care? I don't know. Right now, it feels like they don't. Because I tell you right now, if there's not the bad men, i.e. the police out there scaring off the worst men, <laughs> right? then, you know, the strong will do what they will and the weak will do what they must. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you right now, a lot of you people who are out there feeling like you should defund the police, you don't want the bad men coming Well, I don't you. know if any of those people <laughs> listen to us. No, but <laughs> fuck. Like, yeah, no, it's, um, because, but it's, it is, uh. Okay, well, here's the antidote, I think. It's a kind of, like, gracious but adult crossing of the arms and saying, I understand your feelings, but our institutions can't bend to them. Sorry. Yeah, but they, but, but that, the, that's the problem. Well, that's, what, that's the antidote. We live in a democracy, so right. they do bend to them. <laughs> well. Because they're the majority. I don't know about that. It's hard to know. It's hard to know because, I, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I can't, I don't really trust any mainstream media sources right now because of their incentives, right? Right. So right. I heard it once, who was it? The last, the last franchise or the last freedom people have is the ballot box. It'll be interesting to see in November how it goes at the ballot box because that's like the last way people can and and so to me i guess the terror would be if there are like armed people at polling stations harassing voters yeah like that would be scary because that's kind of the end there's there's a few things here that feel like they could be flirting with the end of america yeah which is yeah. terrifying oh for the world <laughs> yeah so Anyway, this is maybe a bigger topic than... Well, what I really don't like about this is, oh, man, police brutality is a terrible, horrible blight on the world. Yeah. And it's not even in the top 100 horrible things that are happening. <laughs> not even close. Yeah. Like, there are women being trafficked into sexual slavery that they get used for a year or two of their life until their body is completely broken and then just killed. There are people being harvested for their organs in China. Yeah. There are children being used as soldiers in wars over the stuff we put in our computers. Yeah. Okay. Global warming is is killing whole species. Yeah. I said it, right? Like There is really significant fucking horrible things happening in this world. And yes, police brutality is horrible. Mm-hmm. But like we should be a lot angrier about a lot of other things if this is how we feel about that yeah well that's a there's a deeper conversation to be had there Mm -hmm. why why the emotions are the way they are and cop brutality i think is such a visceral and obvious well it makes you feel helpless too i think like i think there's an element of personal helplessness right because like how does one stand up against the state well, I heard Joe Rogan say it today. It feels unfair when the referee beats you up. Oh, I le- yeah. <laughs> right? It feels yeah. unfair when the referee beats you up. And which, it's true. Which episode was that? The one he did with Jocko Willink this oh, week. Oh, okay. 
And it's right, and, and it's a good analogy. But here's the problem I'm seeing is that the referee beats up one of the fighters. He's, he's like an MMA fighter or something. Like, how unfair would it be if out of nowhere the referee punch, sucker punches yeah, right. a guy in the face, right? <laughs> right. And the point I wish Joe Rogan would have made additionally is that how crazy is it that like this seems like a perfect scenario for both fighters to be united against the referee. Right. But instead, it's like the referee punched me and it's your fault. Right. <laughs> to the other fighter. Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so like oh, it's just a it seems so sad. It's like any beef you have beef or potential beef with the other fighter solve that after you solve the referee referee problem. beating the shit out of you. <laughs> Right? Like, both fighters have an interest in that not happening to them. Yeah. So, it could be such a unifying thing, I feel. And, I don't know. It doesn't feel that way. No. I wish I wish it was more unifying. Okay. <laughs> this is just a funny line he says to Marty. You've got some self-loathing to do. It ain't worth losing your hands over. <laughs> it's like, he's so good at these <laughs> double burns. Yes. <Yeah>. Hey? <laughs> It's you're, you're so, yeah. You're so pathetic. <laughs> you have self-loathing to do. Don't do it with broken hands because you know I because <laughs> you know that, that I'll be. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but we should probably talk about this this section. And you alluded to it earlier, but it's when he's talking to the two modern cops about how his daughter was killed. I I got the impression he was insinuating that he was actually the person who ran her over. I couldn't tell. Okay, either way, he says this line. The hubris to take a soul out of non-existence into this meat. And then with his little accent, into this thresher. So it's like, this is like a perfect encapsulation of the idea of antinatalism. This is... Hey? Like antinatalism, for anyone who doesn't know, is um, the idea that it would actually be better to not be born. And, And not only... It would be better to not have kids, to not subject them to the terrors, and the uh, sadness of existence. So, David, now that you have very recently portrayed all the reasons why the world is terrible, <laughs> tell us why you don't agree with this. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. Because it's it's like, yeah, I, I had a visceral reaction where I was like, oh, that doesn't feel right, even though I know what you're saying. Like, that's the thing with Cole. I know what he's saying. Yeah. We- and it just don't feel that way, though. Oh boy! But um, I, I but I don't think he's wrong exactly. But he's not. He's both not right and not wrong, at some level. Because yeah. you see his pain. Like he's he's so he's someone who has so suffered from the loss of his daughter, from the loss of his daughter, and then probably the loss of his marriage, and then you know, and and then the loss of his own self control over himself. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a long and terrible journey that he's been on. Postnatalism. No, antinatalism. 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 Yeah. And so this is like, and this... This is a significant question. This um, might be a weird thing for listeners, but like this is, there are mainstream academics who argue for this point. Like, yes. Like the suffering of life is so great, it would actually be a net benefit to not exist in the first place. Assuming, of course, in your underlying assumption that the purpose is to limit suffering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Or to alleviate suffering. Yeah, so there's like definitely some utilitarian... There's a first principle there. Facelessness. The first, yeah, the first principle <laughs> is, is suffering is, is or ultimately the purpose is to limit mm-hmm. suffering. Or, right? or uh, yeah, and the suffering being so great kind of thing. Right. It's, it's tough because, okay, steel manning his point would be something like this, I think. 
being aware of the tragedies of the world, which you so well. Right. <laughs> and <laughs> so wholesomely laid out for us a few moments ago, knowing that those things exist, having a child carelessly seems really irresponsible, right? Like having a child, bringing a child into the world without being able to provide against that in some way, shape, or form seems callous. Right? Yeah, I think I think if we believe that, I mean, it depends on your first principle, right? I happen to be on the other side, right. I, I would say, of Coles, and I believe that consciousness is the most important thing and, and mm. of a qualitative, uh, and I, we don't think we agree on this, so this will be interesting, but uh, <laughs> of a qualitative difference from everything else that exists mm. and that that consciousness is so precious and beautiful and unique mm. and it, and it may just be us. We may be the right. only, like humanity may be the only consciousness in the universe. Uh, it seems unlikely. Well, it seems almost definitely at the level we're at. Yeah. It, 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 certainly on earth anyway. Cer- well, for certainly on earth. And I mean, you can't really say one way or the other, but I mean, there's the Fermi paradox, mm-hmm. and it's like, well, if the, if life evolves so easily, where is it? Because we know that there right. are planets that are billions of years old that right, were right, in right. the Goldilocks zone and should have been able to house life. And there's there's no galactic spanning civilizations, and there there appears to be nothing mm-hmm. out there except for us. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But my point is, if we're it, and we have somehow not this evolutionary mistake that Russ says, but we've somehow garnered this sacred, I would even be willing to say, ability to analyze ourselves, to 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 observe, to be almost a, almost as close as you could get, objectively observe and understand the universe and and create. We are creators in a way that nothing else comes close to. Well, I think that's that that you almost have a a, um, a duty mm. to keep consciousness going, right? And that, despite the individual suffering, and 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 then I would add this: perspective is important here, right? Because a lot of people's suffering can be turned into beauty. Mm. Yeah. It can it can be a transformative and almost transcendental experience in which they go from perhaps being almost animalistic in their life, living routinely and unaware and unreflectively to this reflective, joyous, peaceful, suffering-reducing experience Mm. based on how they dealt with their own suffering. I think that not bringing someone in to the possibility of that, mm. A, B, conti- so A, A is continue consciousness. Okay. B is the p- potential for beauty. Mm-hmm. And C, I would just say, it's kind of what we do. Mm. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, no, definitely. Like That's as, what we do. As gene bags, let's go sure. right down to pure biology. Like yeah, the selfish gene. We don't love sex because it feels good. Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> but I know what you mean. <laughs> um, like, we weren't programmed to... Like, pleasure wasn't programmed. Uh, I think a good way to phrase it is we know why sex feels good. Right. And it feels good because everything in us... Mm-hmm. When you when you really become 
sexually attracted to someone mm-hmm. in a in a in a procreative way. And I'm not saying you're going to procreate. Right. But I'm saying when your brain locks in on this is a partner, mm-hmm. a lot of that yeah. is just tied to, well, let's keep going. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was great. I mean, there's a lot in there that is I actually think you're right. <laughs> I say quizzically. Right. Uh, I'm trying to think like I I do think consciousness is qualitatively different than anything else certainly on earth that I've come across. So I don't think that's the disagreement. I think maybe the disagreement would be the precepts for consciousness or like where it would be reasonable to believe it would come from. Right. If it and even, I mean, or even if it had an origin. And I wouldn't I wouldn't make a which it's not declarative yeah, statement yeah, on yeah, that. Yeah. I just I sense something different about it. Mm-hmm. Everything that I've done to analyze it has brought me to the conclusion that there's something unique here. Yeah. Well, and I mean, not to get bogged down in semantics either, but like consciousness is actually a conglomeration of many, many, many different psychological phenomenon. Yeah. Right? Like it is a lot, like it includes focus, it includes attention, it includes tiredness, it includes fatigue, it includes distraction, it includes... Uh, arousal it includes attraction it includes ennui right like all of these different words are just different factors of consciousness so you know the 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 prickly little uh, philosophically minded person is like well which part are we talking about and and to me the consciousness is more just like the continuity of a sense of self yeah i think that would be what i would define it as yeah. yeah and i think that that is qualitatively different than anything and it is the sum of all of those other things i just mentioned and the sum um, seems to be greater than the, the sum is greater than the, the, uh, the something the whole is greater, is greater than, than the sum of its parts, parts. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah yes <laughs> yeah i mean that might be where we would diverge and see i, I think that's what, yeah there's not a lot that rides on that either though no <laughs> right like that's what's no. interesting i guess all i mean is i so i that's why i categorically reject mm. i think that idea right i mean not just because it seems impractical right <laughs> right in the okay idea. well so then i always try to find the right question to ask so if consciousness was explicable through less loftier terms than one might hope if it is physical would that remove your desire to believe it's the still the most important thing and to fight no for? not at all okay. no no i don't think so because i feel like that is something that affects people that we know. Yes, <laughs> right? no, like that, for sure. That uh, no, one hundred percent it does. And, and what's interesting, and this is a definitely true psychological fact about me, is that unlike many members of my family, to say the least, of like religious history and and theology in general, is that I never saw the diminution or demotion of the majestic in being able to explain a phenomenon. So none of the magic of the experience is lost on me if there's an explanation for it that isn't supernatural or theological. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that that is a worry. <laughs> well, that, I think that's... that that people in my family had for sure. I would, right? speak, well, I would speak to that by saying I think that the reason it's a worry is because this is something that I've probably the number one thing that I've been reflecting on over the last two months. Okay, and it's the idea of identity. Right and how we tie our sense of of self to a, a set of precepts, yeah. whether it's an ideology or 
or a religion or a sexuality or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So like people can define themselves as like men, right? I'm like a masculine, <laughs> you know, I'm a man's man. I don't really know what that's and like. That, <laughs> and that's a part of their identity, right? Yeah. Or someone could tie their identity to being a musician. Mm-hmm. And but I more relate to that one. Right. But there's but there's more nefarious identities like radical ideologies. Mm-hmm. Why is this important? Because when you define your identity as attached to some idea, mm-hmm. whatever that idea might be, right? when that idea is attacked, you are attacked. Sure. So you react in a survival mm-hmm. sense, like fight or flight, right? So if it's attacked, some people will just go into their shell mm-hmm. and they won't... Uh, they won't discuss, and they're a flight, right? Others will get red in the face and be ready for a fight. Mm-hmm. But the reaction is is for the same reason, or the reaction is mm-hmm. actually the same base thing, yeah. which is I, me, my sense of identity yeah. is now threatened. Well, I guess my message of hope is that I think that that's actually overcomable. I agree, right? But I th- but I think it's a lot of hard work. Like I, I, not only do I think it's overcomeable, I think that's the human project. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, that no, is the point. that's the most important thing you can ever do in your life mm-hmm. is to actually separate yourself mm-hmm. from an idea mm-hmm. and simply observe a being. Right. Well, I mean, I guess like if any of our listeners are religious, the people to best read for this, I think, are both William James and Jordan Peterson who have a re who who for me who's an empirically like both those guys are scientists well james is long dead they were both scientists and they but they reframed the christian stories and the christian mentality in a way that really made sense to me but didn't need the outlandish parts to be as true as the like psychologically and socially vital parts well, yeah. Right? And I, so it's yeah, like I agree. the ability to kind of transcend the palpably absurd parts and just realize that, like, <laughs> you can keep the baby without the bathwater. Yeah. And and I think those two guys I mentioned are the best, are the two greatest people in history, at least in the Western canon, at articulating that. Well, this is actually my, my I'm, I've decided my biggest criticism of, of Rust mm. is that I think that he's too full of conviction. Mm, I know, yeah, I know yeah, that yeah. sounds no, no. Weird. I, I uh, having grown up in the same religious culture yeah. <laughs> that you have, I know exactly what you're talking right. about. Right, like with he's him. he he's he is a man who thinks he's who, who thinks he knows he's right. Mm-hmm. And this is going to get interesting, but I like I I, I was that way for yeah. sure. I was that way, and it took. That's probably why you see it all the more clearly. Yeah, in him. Yeah, like I was for sure so certain of the rightness of my worldview that it, that I was consumed by it mm-hmm. and my worldview was was very I mean we've talked about it before this this grandiose idea of self mm-hmm. as greatness as right. tea but it was like it was not just a possibility that I could become something amazing mm-hmm. I, I was destined it was my you know future it mm-hmm. was my fate and I think that kind of fatalism I, I don't even blame that on religion i think it was just like he, a, a few misconceptions stacked on top of each other that created a an well, idea re- of a person religion was just the closest thing for you to grab 
Yeah. For that mentality. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but I think that that happens to all kinds of people. I would make, I, I think there's a really important point to be made here, even just on that thought, is that I grew up with the idea that religion was a category, right? And I think if I now look back on like someone like Hitchens, I think his greatest mistake was to also think as religion as a category. I see now religion as the primo example in a broader category. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> right? Oh, I love that. Right? That so is so good. When, yes. when Hitchens said religion poisons everything, I thought I knew what he meant, and I still do know what he meant. But I think what was better to be said is religion is the best example of a particular mindset that that poisons poisons everything. everything. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) Yes. One of the distinctions that I love to make uh, in having conversation with people is the difference between a person of faith and a person of religion. Yeah. Why? Because I think... I think Tolstoy is right. I don't think you mm. can you can realistically live a good and um, meaningful life without faith. But when I say faith, I'm not talking about a faith. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about faith itself, which is that you you have to believe in something. Mm-hmm. Just as we talked about with Rust, he he's not a good nihilist. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, no. <laughs> like this is this is exactly like this idea has been approached in almost every direction by some sort of thinker yes right yes Camus approached it from an atheistic perspective and said look I don't believe in God but I don't have a choice but to care (laughs) right (laughs) Right? like I gotta believe in something it's not up to me or you I care about my existence even though I don't believe in a supernatural power And, and in a different way like a more traditional religion would be like you care and here's why and you know, there's different. The here's why is what's different. Yeah, <laughs> right. Everyone yeah. realizes we care. This is. A, I like. <laughs> I want to keep going on this because I like that what you just said. Here's why. Mm-hmm. So I think the the issue with the here's why isn't that there's an a story, mm. right? And yeah. this goes back to Christianity and and major world religions and and the issue that I have with them. Right. And here's the issue that I have with them. It's not that they tell a story. Mm-hmm. It's that they've decided. That they, not not to love the beauty of their story, not to talk about the beauty of their story. I, the Jewish faith has done this better than a lot of faiths mm. uh, in, in, in getting more to what is the wisdom here. Mm-hmm. It's also the oldest, so or the oldest of the Abrahamic religions. Mm-hmm. But here's what I don't like. It then turns around and says, and here will be your sense of identity. Yeah. Right? Yeah, here will yeah, be yeah. the, th- here's what's going to give you meaning and purpose in the world. And here's what's going to give you validation, mm-hmm. right? What you're going to now align yourself with is a, this group of people who's, who, <laughs> who, what they're interested in is saying, I'm in a tribe. Right. Well, sorry, did you say that the Jewish one is a little different? Because <laughs> well, they definitely tribed right. up. No, no, they, they, <laughs> they, but they understand that that's what it is. Yeah, right. Right? They understand that actually the value is in the community, mm-hmm. but it isn't, I'm in a tribe and you have to be in my tribe. Yeah, but right? it's, because it's, actually Judaism is not a, a, a apostatizing religion. Right, but it's also what well, at least in its proselytizing, modern, not in the modern incarnation and I imagine in a lot of others. What's great about Judaism in specific is that it isn't it doesn't shove its weight around. Yeah. <laughs> right, like it doesn't say, "Hey, you have to take on our beliefs too." And it it doesn't uh, but it does like it doesn't like you could convert to Judaism. Yes, right? you, like could, you yeah. could. Oh, people you do. Could, yeah. You could make it part of your identity. Like it's but not a there, but no one's door. out there saying you have to. Yeah. Right? Yeah, Whereas yeah. I think in a lot of other religions there is a big well, an incredible push to saying, "Well, if you don't agree with us, mm-hmm. 
you're offside. Well, this is exactly what I mean when I say religion is used as an example for an antecedent category of a negative human psychological take on Which, things. And I know you haven't read the, the Wait But Why, the story of us. And, right. But please do. Because well, I guess we agree, right? <laughs> Sounds like This maybe... is what he does. He builds it up and he's yeah. like, he explains it. And it was the most, I think it's, as I've moved on in life from reading it, I think it's probably the most transformative thing oh, nice. I've ever read. Well, I mean, just on this vein, like, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I will read it at some point. Yes, yes. I'm just always reading something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a nerd. I remember people who, from church, like, there were lots of lovely people, but there were some people who were just so strict and so butthurt about everything that, oh, you guys are too liberal. Like, why are they dancing? Like, or, or oh, like, oh, why sure. the kids get to run around? Or my interpretation of the Bible yeah. is the purest and most and, beautiful form. And at the time, it's just kind of like, oh, they're, uh, like a bad Christian or they're an uptight Christian. And it's like, no, they're just an uptight person who's using Christianity to help their own psyche out. (laughs) Like that's not healthy. And so, yeah, I I agree. Like the uh, insistence on identity as a category, like as opposed to, I guess like the healthy version of, of identity is something that, you don't mind, I guess, being said about you, but it's not like what your like conscious goal is. Because your conscious goal, at least for me, the healthiest conscious goals I have are just pursuing things I like. So for example, I really like to play guitar. Now, if someone else wants to say I'm a guitar player, I'm fine with that. But I don't feel like telling other people I'm a guitar player. Right. I like saying I play guitar. But I don't I think like music. Uh, see, see, uh, this is where I would distinguish the difference. Okay. Being a guitar player isn't your identity. Yeah. No. But if it was, you would tell everyone that you play guitar. Or you would kind of flex that you're playing guitar all the time. You know what I mean? Like, it would be something that you wanted to broadcast to the world. If well, it was maybe a part we're of- just talking about how, like, much of a degree it matters to me or to anyone. Sort right? of. Like, I, I don't... I like it. I like someone to say, oh, you play guitar. That's cool. I like that. But I don't consciously try to craft any identity. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's that's literally my point. Is yeah, right. Because you're not trying to craft. It isn't psychologically important to you to have something that you are because you just are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's okay. all right. Well, then <laughs> the, the enlightenment. That's the awakening. Right. That's, yes. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's coming to the realization. Well, because and bec- the reason that that can happen is because anyone has realized the world is so interesting and worth pursuing on its own terms. That, that, that it, you uh, don't need it to be about you. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> music can be about music, <laughs> not about me doing music. Yes. Right? But And as soon as you get reach that point, life becomes so much more beautiful. Oh, that's for damn sure. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. And it's so much less painful. Mm. A lot of the suffering that we experience right. is because we are so attached to identity. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's Rust's problem. Yes. He's attached to his identity of like mild misanthropy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think before when I watched that, I really, um, so I'd say like, because it came out in 2014. I thought uh, it yeah. came out earlier, but. Well, I, I'm pretty, no, because I looked up on IMDb. So the first season was 2014, second so, season was 2015. So I remember when it came out and like, I would say that my, I will call it my most nihilist years. We're kind of like from 23 to 28. Okay. Um, so that would have been uh, 
those times that, during that yeah. time and it was it was very much a, a taking pride in the I, yeah i kind of get it and everything is shit and it's all what well, for me it was like it's all about power mm. i think that's all that all Too that cool matters for shit. i don't know if you've read um jack london much but he wrote a book called seawolf mm. uh, and in seawolf one of the main characters says, you know, it's all just bacteria. We're just eating one another, and who can become the bigger bacteria? That's really all there is. Uh, or no, sorry, yeast. It's not bacteria, it's yeast. Because uh, that's how yeast... Do you know the bread rises in the yeast? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> that was a Luke one for you. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Leaven me alone, hey? Yeah. <laughs> but that wasn't enlightenment. <laughs> yeah. I was attaching my identity to a kind of, cynical, to a kind of cynicism. Right, right, right. Okay, well... That's awesome. Like that, all of that is so crucial. I want us to like fairly answer his question though, or or his challenge, right? The hubris of bringing someone right. into this thresher. Okay, again, steel man. I don't know if hubris would be the right, it wouldn't be the word I would use necessarily, unless you were like intentionally bringing someone in so they could suffer maximally. <laughs> right. Then there's a different word I use, like psychopathy <laughs> or yes, something. Yes, yes, yes. But let's just say the inattentive or the distractedness of bringing someone in the world and then not being up to the task of preparing them for the suffering maybe like that would be a more real being a bad parent yes but that's almost a too easy of a way to put it because before you even have the kid like because because the tenor of the point he's making is um this is something someone would think about before they have a kid and then do it consciously. Right. Now, I don't think actually people do that for the most part. I think people just find out they're pregnant one day. It's like, so obviously, there's some couples that are trying to get pregnant. I think a lot of people just like, oh, I'm pregnant. Or, oh, okay, well, I guess we're having a baby now kind of thing, right? <laughs> right, right. But I want to take the challenge seriously. It's like, okay, if you're thinking about having a kid and you're not, you and your partner aren't pregnant yet or you aren't pregnant yet, okay, doing that responsibly how to take the hubris out of it how to be like okay you're right rust this is a challenge you i'm taking your challenge at face value and i'm still gonna do i'm still gonna have the kid but i'm not gonna be irresponsible about it and like that's what i got out of that point is like i'm gonna go into well me like when it happens in my life i'm gonna go into becoming a parent with my eyes open without lying to myself about the nature of suffering in the world so that my kid gets caught off guard by it and, and I think and, and fucked over by it kind of thing. So um, I was talking to someone about this last night, and oh, nice. um, in that conversation, one of the the things that my dad has always told me, which I really took a lot of, um, I think it's very wise. He's like, we can't change our cell, our 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 own upbringing, right? but we can take the good that we got mm. from how much they tried. Mm -hmm. And like, I think this is an underestimated thing too. I think a lot of people out there, most people are genuinely trying. Like they're trying, trying. to be decent yeah, okay. people. They're not out there maliciously planning how to exact horrible revenges, right. which is why those people kind of throw us off and we have like titles for them and we study them because yeah, 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 yeah. they're not normal, right? Yeah, exactly. They're, yeah. <laughs> like it's a, it's literally abnormal. Well, statistically, yeah. they're not normal. And, and, but I think most people out there are really just trying and all we can do is take, you know, I, I know our parents were trying, right? I, I know absolutely they loved, I mean, I know my parents love me immensely and yeah, maybe they, maybe they didn't do a perfect job, but my job is to take 
that 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 decency, that that raw goodness, I'll call mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And improve on it. Right. Right? And to and to take and try to just do a little bit better. And I love what you just said where you're like because one of the things I learned that I don't feel like was taught to me, maybe because they didn't know it or think about it that way. Well, yeah, life is suffering. Mm-hmm. And like that used to be taught a lot more. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why Jordan Peterson's like, people well, have been saying this for a very long it time. It didn't even need to be taught. No. It was just around everybody <laughs> right, all the time. Right. 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 Yeah. We're, Victims we're, of our own success. Again, we are, and this is not to trivialize COVID <laughs> because it's serious and it's important, but. During the bubonic plague, one out of three to one out of two people died. Yeah. Right? Now, imagine if we were in a scenario where... Oh, it'd be chaos. Uh, 33 to 50% of everyone around us was dying in the street. Like... People we know. Like, well, half of the people we know would be dead. I found out, with just some casual reading about this, that by most approximations, Europe took two centuries to recover from the black plague so it was like not until like the 1500s where it was kind of back to like baseline from before the plague yeah right that is crazy so yeah i i know what you mean we're not taught about it but i again well because i work with kids the kind of science as it is developmentally is that approximately 85 percent of what we learn is experiential Right, right. Like so much of learning is what we do, which is why we say I got to get experience. Right, like that's not just a actually, and that makes so much sense because, like, I would say the amount I've learned from, and I'm sure this is the case for you, doing work Mm -hmm. is infinitely more than was taught to me in school. Absolutely, like not even they're not even comparable. Yeah, and I mean. Like, like I value I re- the non-experiential learning I've oh, done. Oh, well, I mean, we have a podcast about non-experiential. <laughs> like, we're talking about stories. That's the backup title for the podcast, non-experiential learning. <laughs> I like that. That's like funny. That. That's yeah, funny. That's but great. yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So in the scene, um, he's talking to Maggie. I-, I thought this was interesting. Like, kids are the only reason for this man-woman dance. What do you think that's about with him? Let's go down to the gene bag. <laughs> yeah. Right? Right. And when I say gene bag, I hope everyone understands I'm talking about like... The body. We are genes. Yeah. Like fundamentally, you are a, a system of genetic code. Mm-hmm. And that genetic code wants to self-replicate. Right. And so <laughs> this very complex thing called a human being <laughs> is really <laughs> just a really, really... I mean, if you believe that, which I don't, but if you believe that... In that kind of world, we're just a really, really complex. But there's something, you're right, but there's something even kind of like more pointed that he's getting at here is saying, without kids, there wouldn't really be a reason for this man-woman thing. And And I, and I, I don't agree. I don't either. But again, like all the things he says, he's not obviously wrong. No, no, he's right, not. Because like, no. there's a lot of bad relationships between well, men and women. I think it, like <laughs> this is, comes down to perspective. Right. That's, that is a way to look at mm. the situation. Sure. And the data could line up with that. Mm-hmm. You, could, you could look at the data and I've looked, I have lived in that way. I have, I've literally thought of male-female relationships only in that context. Well, and you've got to remember, Cole himself is coming from the perspective of my wife either left me or we broke up because my kid died. We couldn't handle it as a <laughs> right. couple, right? Yeah. Cuz we lost it. So so yeah. But I I've like tried to boil it down to biology and you know there's chimpanzee politics. Like you can 
boil the male female relationship down to that. But yeah, maybe I'm you know just feeling more romantic about it all. But um, I I wonder why, <laughs> David. <laughs> but I think there is a lot to be said for adding sexuality into an interpersonal relationship that transforms mm-hmm. the nature of that relationship into something very different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I can't, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna speculate on how that mix changes, but the way I kind of view it, and I was thinking about this earlier when you were talking about how we don't really get to know someone for those two months that we don't see them. So unless we're like really talking to them or whatever, that time period of them is not within our category. Yeah, Peterson calls it an importance of intertwining a nar- your life narrative with somebody else's. Right. I see it like, let's take your and I's relationship. Uh, we've, we, we met when we were babies, like you were a little less of a baby than me, you were a toddler. And we've known each other all this time. And really, uh, C.S. Lewis kind of talks about it, but what has been created is a relationship, but it's almost like a being, mm. right? It's it's almost like a thing in and of itself that can, right. but it, but its its existence is dependent on our both of our continued existence, mm-hmm. and it's more fragile than actually an individual human consciousness. But it has kind of a life of its own, mm-hmm. and it can be nurtured and it can be grown. And that thing is, you know, family for us. Mm-hmm. And it would be a friendship for our, with our friends. And and then, there, but it's Eros and right. Phileo and, and other things in a romantic relationship. And I think there is a kind of beauty in conversation mm-hmm. that can only be had when <laughs> there's sexual tension. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. I think you're right. Probably in that conversation he was having with Maggie, he was just in a bad life space. Yes. <laughs> no, no, no. And so was she. But 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 they both like I said were. you could take that position. Yeah. You could you could look at and, life. and you wouldn't be wrong. That's and why you, you're saying it's perspective. It's perspective. It's perspective and like you um, w- you wouldn't what be, you're working. You wouldn't on. be categorically wrong. Like yeah. you couldn't you could you could not be with the data available proven like wrong. wrong. Yeah. 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 You're right. And. A lot of anecdotal, like obviously, like mar- uh, relationships breaking up or disintegrating or or even just fizzling out. Those seem, for some reason, I mean, I, I it's not for some reason. I could probably guess at the at the psychological reasons, but those just seem to be more in culture. Yeah, they seem to like they're on the news. You don't. <laughs> Like until a couple gets to like their fiftieth wedding anniversary, there's not a headline about them. No, right? no. <laughs> but you know, when somebody breaks up after they're, three months, then everyone's it's just like, about "Oh my it. gosh!" Right? And so, yeah, there's something kind of been put into the forefront of the disintegration of relationships. That and that's a little different than when Cole's getting at because Cole's being quite personal about it. But his it's it's like one of the biggest versions of his cynicism, and I and I get it. Like in some way, I, I get why he's like that. But yeah, you're right. It's not categorical. No, it's it's like <laughs> I get it. I think it just comes down to how you decide to to, to view the world. Absolutely. Like I don't think it. Oh has... my gosh, <laughs> David. <laughs> yeah. My whole worldview has come kind of to some sort of idea around basically the way you live is just based on your temperament. <laughs> Your temperament and but can your you attitude, your temperament? a little bit, but not a lot. <laughs> like, mm. There's some of it that you can, okay. but like, you know, there's evidence around, social scientific evidence around, well, 
people who are more open to experience temperamentally generally vote for more liberal parties because they're more open-minded like that or like open to new experiences and then people with higher conscientiousness in their temperament generally vote for conservative parties because that's kind of like where they are you know and it's yep. like it's funny to think about it in those terms just like you know working with kids and then with teenagers during this lockdown like there are just some temperaments that are better suited for the environments of the work that they're in and you can you can give people training which is good you can help them and and people can improve i think people can change in a work environment i think people who are temperamentally predisposed to a particular work will always be better than the people who aren't yeah you know, but so what is the temperament? Let's dig down further. What does that mean? <laughs> what when you say that word? I like, I'm not enough of an expert to give it a clinical definition. No, I just want uh, you your know, definition, like, uh, um, your like conversational, just, definition. just how the world, how how the world hits your intuitions. Well, like, I think that is changeable, though. I do too. I because like I, when I describe that five year pe- and and that's how this this show ends. Well, okay, no, like, look, yes. I think how you respond to the way the world changes your intuitions is definitely changeable and in your control. Right. I don't know how much you can control the way your intuitions work. Oh, interesting. Right, because those are oh, kind of yeah. preconscious. You can react and, 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 to... And, 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 and I think one of the great maturities of my life is realizing not just that people have different intuitions than I do, but they have both radically different and subtly different intuitions than I do. And then in groups we kind of congregate our intuitions around a kind of like maypole or like a central I like icon. this. This but, is interesting. But even someone even some of my best friends, I realize I have mild intuitional differences from and that's a whole different conversation. There's lots of interesting things to be talked about there. But yeah, I I do think that temperament is could, kind could, of like would, intuition. Would you be willing to say personality? Well, I think personality is well, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of like how you respond to your intuitions. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, like, I think you can change that. I think you can. I, I generally have a pretty outgoing so let's personality, say like, you know, but you I do, can tamp it down if I need to. When you do a Myers Briggs, mm, yeah. is that your personality? Uh, it's one version of a particular t- kind of test of your personality. Which but is that gives, personality or temperament? It could be a fine hair to split that I don't know exactly how. And these might not be the right way to classify it. To me, temperament is how you ingest the world, and personality is how you output into the world. And they're related. They're related because. I like this. Okay, um, so that's. I like this. And they might not be the right words. Like, no. Personality is the right word there because it's personality is output. I don't know if temperament is input, but that's kind of how I see it. Is like, I can tell at my work how the input of stimuli are affecting people differently. Right. Just at their baselines, it's affecting people differently. Well, I don't differently. think it really matters what the technical <laughs> definition is. The idea right. here is what we're getting yeah, at, yeah, yeah. which is there's a there's one way in which you react to the input of data, mm-hmm. and we'll call that temperament for the sake of this conversation. Mm-hmm. And then there's another one where you output into the world, yeah. and both can be changed, Yeah, I think. Uh, I think that or how the, you re- the input is harder to change. It's not right. that it's impossible, but I think the output, they're both hard. The output is easier to change because you can reflect. Like we do have the ability of conscious thought. Right, right. I don't know how much, I, I like, and I'm actually totally agnostic about this. I don't know how much control I have over the inputs onto my nervous system. Like how they affect my thinking about what's happening to me. 
Hmm. I don't know. I, I, I would, th- we would need to speak to experts about this. Yes, people right. who study this. Like there's some, I'm sure there's some niche psychologist slash neuroscientist who, who studies like, this. Yeah, yeah. And like, what is intuition anyway? Like what, what is the biological correlate? Like what's happening to my brain when I'm having a sensation that I call intuition later? Right. <laughs> right. Like, I don't know exactly. <laughs> All I know is that behaviorally people do handle those inputs different. Yeah. Which is fascinating. <laughs> it's fascinating. Like it, right? It's true. Oh, gosh. What a guy. <laughs> okay. Here's a line Cole says that I think ties well into what we've been talking about. Everyone wants cathartic narrative. And I wrote, especially the guilty. <laughs> yeah. But catharsis is pretty great. Of course. Right? <laughs> That's what they talk about in Inception. Yeah. The positive catharsis is so much more powerful with family than the negative one, which is why they try to make they try to mend that relationship yeah. between the guy and his dad. Just a couple little points here about how Cole is the true detective. One of the things I couldn't help but notice is like he does all the unsexy work too, right? Like he combs through case files. He just he spends so much time and when he finds out in 2002 that someone other's still talking about the Yellow King, like it's internal, right? He can't, <laughs> the intuition he feels that he, he can't not go search that out more. I know we've talked about that before with the good detectives, like the ones who follow the data, not maybe their interests or their desire to impress their superiors. Now, obviously, Cole doesn't have that problem in this. No, he's he a lover. Feels that pull, right? He's a lover of the process. He mm-hmm. likes the 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 doing of the case more than he likes any one outcome. Mm-hmm. So now, and then another example of what I love about his detecting abilities. There's the scene in I think yeah, it's the sixth episode. He goes and finds the old revival preacher, and this is something that I think is so awesome. He always knows the right person to go talk to. He always knows the right next person to talk to. We haven't talked to this person. Oh, this person's story didn't quite line up with that person. We have to go back and talk to that person again. Oh, this name was mentioned by these two people who didn't know each other. So we have to go talk to that person, right? And so when the part where he gets to finding out about the fact that a lot of these missing kids also happened to go to all of these Tuttle's schools, he knew to go talk to that old revival preacher, right? And like... Why this show is so great is that it doesn't hit you over the head with it. You just have to connect the dots yourself. Right. You know? yeah, he doesn't say, he doesn't explain his process. Mm-hmm. You just watch it happen. Right. It's show me, don't tell me. Right. Because <laughs> then that leads really well into uh, the scenes in the sixth episode where he goes to visit the Tuttle, who's the higher up preacher. And he does that even when he's ordered not to. So that's another example of his, like, I guess that's an example of him not following his police rules. Yeah. But he does it because he's guided by ethics and conscience and where the data is going. Like, everything in the case says go to see him because he would know some answers. Mm-hmm. He catches Tuttle in the lie. There's an embezzling going on. Like, it is clear that that's what's happening. Like, there's some money getting stolen here. Mm-hmm. But the powers that be don't like how close he's getting. And so that's what gets him in trouble. There's something really admirable to me in the in the idea of the person. Maybe this is part of the reason we like Cole. He's admirable because he 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 walks into the flame knowing he'll get burnt, but that's where the trail is leading. When it yeah, comes to him um, as a detective, 
I think that's what I mean by authenticity, though, right? Like, right, yeah. And this is even what I mean when we were describing you earlier, <laughs> and you were saying, I don't think of myself as those things because the world is so much more interesting than me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, I see what you're saying. He He's less interested in his career or his idea, and he's just interested in i mean he's a true detective Mm -hmm. what interests him is the case Mm -hmm. above all else above his own well-being above anything right his obsession is what's going on here (laughs) i mean we've talked about it in other shows he knows he's gonna get in trouble he knows the power tuttle has he knows that his boss is gonna get mad at him but how could he not do it what is it, that line from Calvin and Hobbes when Hobbes asks it why he's playing with frogs or looking at frogs? And Calvin says, I must follow the inscrutable exhortations of my soul. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yes, yes. Like, I feel like that's kind of what Cole's doing. That is he, true. He's following the inscrutable exhortations of his soul. I love it. Yeah. And so I think that's part, yeah, that's why he's the true detective. I, yeah, it's kind of cool how the, it's a pun. Well, is it a pun? True detective. Like, no, 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 I think it's a as an exaltation. So it's supposed to be all of these people who are detectives and showing like the trueness of them in some way. I think so. Well, uh, I think it's. I, think I like that. Well, I also think it's about rust. Hmm. I, okay, I will deal with this we'll next episode. That, yeah. <laughs> I will make arguments that I think it's also Marty. Oh, okay. But I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's probably- it's more obviously Cole and probably more thoroughly Cole. But I think Marty also has some of those elements as well. Got it. Okay. But I, I wanted to ask your opinion on this line. Because this is a line he says to that uh, lady convicted of killing her kids, Charmaine. Prison is very hard on people who hurt kids. If you get the opportunity, you should kill yourself. And on the surface, this seems like a threat or even like a gloat. I actually interpret it more as a advice. compassionate piece of advice. <laughs> Which is pretty Ooh, interesting. Up, <laughs> is little, but wow. he's not wrong. And so in that sense, he's like, I'm actually going to help you solve a problem, not just virtue signal. <laughs> not that there is any virtual signaling available in an interrogation room exactly. <laughs> but like, I don't know, like both mm. that instance, that concept. That's a, I also noticed uh, that moment quite vividly. And I would say just again, I think as like a first principle consciousness being good, you, you can't alleviate suffering uh, for yourself. Like you can't you can't check out. Well, you mean you shouldn't? Yeah. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm making a normative claim, right? right? Like, if your first principle is that that consciousness matters, mm-hmm. then snuffing it out, and 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 the part of the reason I would say that I'm trying to formulate that as a first principle for myself. Mm is it also means that there's inherent dignity in consciousness. Right. Yes. So on a moral and ethical framework, it 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 gives value to the human, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, then we have to apply it to this case, though. So then, then in this case, <laughs> I would say if the, if the first principle was minimize suffering, hmm. which sort of seems like it might be a little bit for Cole, Russ Cole. Well, and... For this lady, it would be like personal suffering. I'm talking about suffering. Intense, deep personal suffering. Yes. You'll probably be tortured and then killed. Yeah. So skip the torture. So, so, so there's the question, right? Um, do you? Yeah. 
Well, so like uh, my argue, my argument is that it's better just to suffer that than to extinguish consciousness. Yeah, I know. Which is I mean that's a bold claim. Like it's like right? a limit because this lady, this mom Charmaine who killed her, well, she was convicted of or she confessed to killing one of the kids and was suspected of, but like she definitely did kill two of her other kids. So she's killed three kids. And so Cole is telling her I think compassionately. No, like, yeah, like, I, like, I, I think, I think your read on your read on the situation is, is correct. Compassionate. He, he his delivery is always so icy and dispassionate that it's hard to read it that way. Mm-hmm. All of his he doesn't gloat over the weak. He just kind of pities them and then avoids them, but he doesn't gloat over them in the way that other people might. Again, because he's reconciled himself to his nature, he doesn't feel like he needs to do that. Even at the revival tent, he only gloats. He only is talking to Marty about how stupid everyone is. He doesn't say it to them. Mm. So I think this interaction with this lady, he's actually trying to help her. Yeah, and so yeah, your I guess your point is no, that getting tortured and then getting killed by all the other people in the prison who will do that to you is. Worth it because uh, presumably you'll be alive longer than if you kill yourself. Right. Yeah. Which is interesting. Which is two different normative claims. Well, yeah. And I just, I mean, I don't know. It'd be tough. It's like that's, again, like I, I feel the vitality of that idea in the abstract. I don't know if I could. Well, here's, I mean, uh, let's look at it. Let's look at a more practical not being tortured and killed in a prison, but you find out you have a terminal illness that's going to be really painful Mm -hmm. and that you're going to suffer from. Right. The question is, do you suffer through it up and right up until the end? Mm. Or do you, uh, you know, limit that suffering? Well, okay. I don't know. I do think that that example changes a major variable psychologically though, which is the harming of an innocent Right. Something that is present in the case with Charmaine is mm, something like justice. So there's not a, like a question of of justice, right, in the terminal no, illness. No, well, case. no, no, no. No, but there though but the question I'm I'm saying in the terminal illness case and the Charmaine case, like as individuals making that own choice, right? Mm-hmm. Cuz really that the person making the choice is either the person with the illness or with Charmaine. Right. Is she going to kill herself or is she going to face suffering? The question isn't what the other people are going to do to her. That's an, a very that's an unquestionable variable, right? <laughs> the question is the choice leading right. up to it. And this is like I don't have an answer to this. Yeah, um, it's a hard one because I, think, I know I, th- what, I think I know what my answer would be. Well, yeah, no, I I, but I can't say that it's well. Only- I mean, we could also talk about like well, prisons. Like, how do we feel about prisons not protecting right people in the prison? Right, like that's a different question as well. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think, like, because, again, psychologically, I think we have such a different vitiation towards other people versus non-people. Like, one of the reasons COVID is so hard is that it's not a person. Yeah. It's not a group of people doing something terrible to us. It's a virus. And we can't hold a virus to the same standards we could hold another person, right? Mm -hmm. Which is maybe why we look for other people to hold accountable for one thing or another, right? So, yeah, I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting scene. And I think, you know, not that Cole is 
an overwhelmingly big softy, but it's a moment I, I, of softiness. I, I think so. Yeah. Like I actually think he's at least letting her think about it. It's gonna suck for you way worse than you can ever imagine. So just maybe keep that in the back of your mind. We talked about this a little bit in other episodes, but in the seventh episode, he has a line that he says to Marty, he's like, since when did guilt and innocence help define a state PD? <laughs> right, right. This is the part of the show where he's convincing Marty in 2012 that they need to go back and solve this case because, and he puts it this way, they have a cosmic duty. And it is. It's not, none of the arguments convince Marty except that they have a cosmic that they have duty. a cosmic duty because he sees the video of Marie Fontenot getting raped and killed and Rust knew that that would convince Marty and so like this was um another example to me of something we talked about before but I think it's really important is that the only bulwark against evil are people who think something like they have a I don't want to say, I mean, cosmic duty might give connotations of ideological duty, and that's not what I mean. But people who will stand up against a bad idea or a bad thing with or without the title of state PD, even though ostensibly state PDs are supposed to, in some sense, stand up against evil, right? Like, there's no guarantee your title of being a cop will make you do that. Clearly, we've seen that. And so putting it into this kind of like... Uh, metaphysical realm, even though I don't mean it exactly like that. That's a good way to think about it. I was like, yeah, that is like, it's, this is a realization I come to. The only thing that has ever stemmed the tide of extremism and bad ideas are people willing to stem the tide of extremists and bad bad ideas. ideas. Yeah. You know, and I, I just loved that little motif of that part. I like that too. So I know we've talked about that before. We don't have to, but it's like, I like when that recurs yeah. in stories, right? And then in the last episode, I love this. This isn't even a deep point. It's just something that gave me a lot of satisfaction. And it's kind of returning to one of the first points I made in this episode. It's when they're sitting in the room and Rust says, we need to look at this like we are totally green. <laughs> and him saying that, like we're totally green, is what makes Marty look again at the spaghetti man with the green ears and then back at the greenhouse right, and right, ask about the yeah. paint, which is the big clue they get as to who the actual killer is. And it just seems to me like if you do the job right, like if you work hard, if you don't cut corners, and we see all this time Rust is not cutting corners, he's hitting his beats, he's going and talking to everyone, he's searching all these case files, you earn your serendipity, right? If you do hard work, you earn your good luck, mm-hmm. in a sense. And I loved that. Like, that's what happened to them. They earned their good luck by Rust being a good detective, right? Yeah. And and I think that that's a useful heuristic for life, is that good luck is often earned by hard work somewhere way before this. Yeah. Like, people yeah. just thinking your name at an opportunity is often because you've done a good job before right oh 100 percent. and the serendipity of that moment it's kind of cheesy but it's funny like obviously this is why in the show it's green and they didn't make that house be painted blue or red so they could have that cute little line in there yeah yeah (laughs) but whatever right right no and so i like that idea it's like you you earn your serendipity if you don't cut corners i love that and i actually think that's what luck is but anyway (laughs) (laughs) um not I like love that. Not like no, dice I, I rolling. No, luck. no, no. I know. Yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. 
Now, here's an interesting one. Everybody's got a choice. Everybody judges all the time. And so this is a part where Marty is saying, why are you judging me? Don't judge me. And he's like, everybody judges all the time. Now, this brings up a concept for me I find interesting. It's like, if you put it into the objective realm, now, forget exactly what objective means, but I always found this a very compelling thing. So, like, Marty is really angry at Cole. Not angry, but he's, like, annoyed and frustrated that he's judging him. And Mar- And in the same way that Chris tells Gordy in Stand By Me, yeah, everybody's weird, but whatever. Yeah. It's like, well, Marty, everybody judges. That's what humans do. Right. <laughs> right? So why are you saying don't do it? Really, what you should be saying is, upon reflection, your judgment of me, does it hold the same water as your initial reaction of your judgment of me? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, and I, I love that. Like, I just, I love any time you can kind of like make something a little bit more objective about it, right? It takes the sting out of a lot of things for me. Yeah. When I think about like the fact that that thing that that person did is that thing unique to them? Did they think about it? Or is it kind of an aspect of human nature that they're not really in control of? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and that's actually done a lot of, that's it's got a lot of mileage for me out of not getting angry. Right, right. And 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 it definitely calms Marty down. Or at least he's like, oh, okay, you're right. Right. <laughs> so it's just an idea. Okay, so this is a good time for us to wrap up the last line of the show. They're talking about the sky at night and marty says it appears to me the dark has a lot more territory and then rust says you're looking at it the wrong way once there was only dark you ask me the light's winning i love so uh. yeah this is a good like final thoughts on that line wrapping up your thoughts on cole oh like what a way to end this show it's so good hey? i'm a like you take a character and you have him rip the you know the thin veil off existence and say look at this and shit. and society and society and, the, and, and, the, and like, you're following yeah. along with him and you're just like you're dejected right you're just like it is everything is shit mm-hmm. and like and all of it seems to be suffering and and pain and and you see these moments where like he's around this woman who they just bring in a scene like she she'd worked at a dry cleaners for twenty years and now her hands shake mm-hmm. and and her and there's stuff wrong with her nails right her job kind of killed her last years yeah and when we think of the tragedy that a simple little tragedy like that mm-hmm. and this show pulls it out throws it in your face yeah, yeah, and it yeah. does this with child rape child murder it goes through all it basically looks at the darkest most horrible things yeah yeah it's hard to imagine a worse <laughs> thing than what this show shows us that people which, are capable of. which you i didn't think about when i first watched it this is visceral stuff mm-hmm, like yeah. this is not for the uh you know the queasy no and there's some raw human shit here what happens between maggie and and Russ Coley, that's that's some like visceral betrayal, painful stuff. Mm-hmm. It does all that, yeah. And what does it say at the end? <laughs> it, it has this character come to the realization that the light's winning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like holy, that that is that is a well because it's not that about, is a twist yeah. that. That is an existential twist you won't find in anything else. I get, I, it's uncomparable because mm-hmm. it's so transformative. It's not the state of the sky; it's the direction it's heading, yes, <laughs> right? right? Which is both about a different. It's two things. It's a different way to think about something, and it's a um, growth-oriented perspective. 
mm-hmm. right? It's like, we're not only going to think different about this, but we're going to think about this as a moving thing yeah. that is improving, even if it's at its very low levels still. Yeah. Yeah, I found the that line, especially at the end, such a great narrative payoff for the audience member paying attention to the discrepancy between what Cole says and what Cole does. Yeah. And that line is a kind of nod and a wink or a a line (laughs) for him realizing that actually his behavior dictates the fact that he believes that a, the light is worth being there and it's going to, he's going to help it grow. Yeah. Right. Like it is, it is, it's a total nod to the fact that despite all of the things that he said, he's acted in a slightly different way than that. Right. And like, what a great narrative tie off to me. That just is a really, it's really rewarding to the audience and to the like conscientious viewer of this show Yeah, to like, Oh yeah, that is what he was doing the whole time, (laughs) you know? So Uh, you're right. That is a great insight. That's, I didn't even think of that. He is not changed, actually. He's mm. just changed the way that he's talking about things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. the way that he's talking about things to himself. Well, and because he's growing, and this is maybe what growth, part of what growth is, is his he's being more honest in his speech about what he is in his mind and his actions. Or maybe <laughs> his mind is changing to better match his actions. Yeah. Oh, that is good. Yeah, so, man... What a show. Honestly, watching this again, almost everything he says, like, oh, that's another concept we're going to have to talk about. But yeah. it's, it's because he's, like, intentionally philosophical. So Yeah. So we have, we, to, then yeah. we have to be more philosophical. Yeah. I mean, if it's implicit, you know, I can overlook some <laughs> yeah. things. So if it's <laughs> explicit, <laughs> no, I even skipped something. Anyway, so that's part one. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk to you in part two, folks. Yeah, well, uh, next episode, we'll be talking about Mr. Marty, because he also is a fascinating character. I think they did such a good job with their two leads. They did. So, anyway, any other thoughts? I guess if I was to summarize, I would say, yeah, when you look at the sky, mm-hmm. it might not look like there's very much light. <laughs> but it's winning. But it's winning. Yeah. Well, may the winning like sky be with you (laughs) and the force with you too luke (laughs) anyway everyone thank you for listening this has been another episode of really true fiction my name is luke mason and my name is david parker have a good one